and we were developing how to throw a boat out of the back of a plane and then everybody free falls after it. And, and they had this big parachute and five or an 8,000 pound release and we're all out under canopy now and it starts oscillating. Had enough of an upswing, the release sensed that there was no weight on it and it let go at about 3,000 feet and it smacked into the water. <laughs> I can remember hearing over the comms, man, the gunner's gonna be pissed. <laughs> Welcome to the Echo Oscar Delta podcast, where we talk to Navy EOD techs and hear the stories that they want to share. All ideas, thoughts, and statements are those of the guest and the host of Echo Oscar Delta, and not of Navy EOD or Navy as a whole. Today we have Greg Wheelock. He retired as a lieutenant commander after 25 years, uh, did a Westpac deployment, and then a whole bunch of TADs all over. Um, some of those include the Philippines, Japan, Guam, Korea, Australia, a lot of good places it sounds like. This episode's sponsors are the Navy Special Operations Foundation is the only foundation that exists to exclusively serve the men and women and the families of the Navy Special Operations community. NSOF exists to ensure that our operators and their families are provided with all the tools necessary to overcome any challenges they face and to ensure that they are never alone in the fight. To learn more about the organization, request support, or make donations, please visit NSOF.org. You know, as I, as I look at this, you hear Lieutenant Commander in 25 years, seems like it doesn't add up, except for you had a, a good amount of time enlisted as well, right? Yeah, I had about 10 years. I am. Um... I just, it's kind of funny. I made senior chief and ensign all within like throwing distance of one another. And, and it's weird too, because I was pretty credible as a senior chief, but the minute I became an ensign, when I picked up the phone at the death, there's like, let me talk to the chief. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's funny how that works. I've, I've, I've heard that uh, a few times. <laughs> yeah, until until they meet you and recognize you've been around the block a little bit. It's kind of like, yeah, right. Ensign Wheelock, good deal. Right. Yeah, it's it's funny when you see the uh, the ensign that looks significantly older than an ensign should. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, so I I know you gave me a little bit of information about yourself. You've got an interesting uh, exposure initially to EOD that kind of led you to it. Do you want to kind of share how you found it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm a kid and my my dad's in the Navy. He was a mineman and this was like kind of during the Vietnam years. So he's very busy doing all that kind of mineman stuff. And, and we ended up, um, I, I didn't live in, in the continental United States until I think I was in the 10th grade. So we lived overseas that whole time. And at the time we were living in Guam and, the, you know, so, you know, we're going to school out in, out in the community and stuff. And and every once in a while, an EOD team would come by and give us a, a lecture at the school about, you know, if you're out playing and you find this kind of stuff, be careful of it, don't touch it, call the police, whatever, you know, it was a standard EOD briefing. But back in those days, they had this big international harvester four-wheel drive truck that had like A-frames and toolboxes. And it's like, oh, man, that's the coolest truck I ever saw in my whole life. It had like winches and stuff and siren bu bubbles and and these guys popped out, and in those days they worked in four-man teams, and they were all like good-looking, you know, in-shape guys, and they had cool starch greens on. And I was listening to them. It's like, yeah, that's me. I, I want to do that. I mean, literally <laughs> from the sixth grade on, that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. You know, as a Navy awesome. guy. 
you know, and then, um, you know, over the course of time, it's like I, I was living in the Philippines and, and I, I, I learned how to scuba dive and, and the guys that, um, gave us pool harassment while I was getting qualified to scuba dive were like guys from the UDT and they, you know, beat the shit out of us and, and, you know, gave us kind of full on pool harassment. And, and it's, it's like, I love that. I love that community. I love doing that stuff. The, um, the places over in the Philippines where we couldn't go diving because they were in like the Naval magazine waters. My dad hooked me up with the local EOD guy and this guy took us out there and we got to go diving and, you know, that's where all the big fish and lobsters were. So I was just like, I, yeah, I'm doing this. You know, that's that was, awesome. That was kind of my goal all the way along. It was a circuitous route to get there, but I've always had that in my sights. Yeah, that that's pretty cool. Uh, as you talk about growing up in different places and one of them being Guam, um, when you went back to Guam on active duty, I think about it, you know, I've, I've, how different Guam has been since I was there. How different was it from when you were growing up to when you went back active duty? Uh, it was quite a bit of difference. For one thing, um, there were no birds. It's like, where the hell did all the birds go? And, and apparently, really? yeah. And, and when I, whenever I was there last as a, um, you know, on, on active duty, I guess since the time I'd lived there, there's these brown snakes that got imported to the island and they started killing off all the birds. And it, I, I was like yeah. noticeable to me that there was no birds around. Um, and also it had grown up, you know, hugely. I mean, Guam was kind of just like a, little island in the middle of nowhere and you could go anywhere and go to the beach or go diving or, or whatever. There was a fiesta in a, in a village every weekend that you went to. Um, so th that had changed when, when uh, I came up there, I think I was like in the fifth and sixth grade, my brother and I went to Aganya Heights elementary school. And I think we were like the only two white kids there. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, but it was cool then. We, you know, we didn't get picked on. They actually were nice to us because we were the only white kids there. But this, this is like in the '60s, so things, things have changed since then. But yeah, yeah. All, it's... <laughs> all of these places have changed. You know, the Philippines was completely different um, when I went back on active duty than when I lived there. You know, as a kid. Um, but, but in some ways, they were still the same. You know. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I always like to think about. Uh... Yeah, even when I travel through America, I like to think about how different it was, you know, like when like going from East Coast to West Coast and then you get to the Rockies and you're like, man, how did people like get here? You know, and just I, I just like to think about how things changed over the time. I always think about that when I'm driving across the desert and you just look out as far as you can see and there's just more desert and it's like 110. Yeah. It's like, man, can you imagine being in a wagon train and seeing that ahead of you? Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, so you, uh, you went through, you went through school. Um, you kind of like got to the point where you're like, all right, this is, uh, you know, what you've wanted to do since you were six years old mm -hmm. and now you're starting to do it. Was it what you expected? It, 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 it was, it was actually pretty cool. Um, Again, I, I had this image in my mind, and I'd come up through time. But I also back back in those days, you had to be in the Navy for a little while before you went into EOD. You had you had to be like at least a second class, and so I had some fleet experience too. And so coming from that and going into EOD, it was just like, oh hell yeah, this is this is really <laughs> good. This is way better than I would have, you know. And, and and it was fun. But you know, you also find out that maybe that thing that you idolized when you're really young, once you're actually doing it, you realize that. Yeah, this community's got really cool people, really smart people, 
but we also got some knuckleheads too that managed to make it through. And so you start yeah. looking around and you and you see it's like everything's everything's kind of relative. You know, it's we're on auto we're on auto supermen. We uh, we like to think we are, but we you know, we we're just as stupid as some of the other guys when it comes down to it sometimes. <laughs> Right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's almost like a mystique to it. And then when you get in, you're like, Oh, okay. Everybody's like regular people yep. and, and there's lefts and there's rights, you know, like there's super in shape and then there's just passed by bare minimums, which right. minimums are good enough, but <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. It's, it's like, okay. But that's when I also realized it's like, Huh, maybe I can be something in this community. They're they're not all Greek gods that I'm going up against and competing with to to find my place. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good point. I think sometimes uh we we don't do things because we see it from the outside and don't realize that, oh, if, if I just work hard, I can be that too. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it, it, it sort of proved itself out over time. I was very fortunate in a lot of cases. The timing was right, but it's also it's like Eh, if you just put your nose down and, and especially like when the job is shitty, that's the time to really dig in and do a good job. Cause that's when people notice that you're like that and, and you get other opportunities. You know? Exactly. That's a hundred percent true. <laughs> you know, I, I think, I think Mahone was talking about, you know, he was just like sitting around fat, dumb and happy and they plucked him out to go do these special jobs. But you know, what it won't tell you is Mahone volunteered for all the shitty jobs and did a good job at him. And that's why they plucked him out and, you know, gave him good jobs later on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what mobile unit did you go to first? Uh, well, at, at the time there were only two, there was mobile unit one and mobile unit two and, and two is in Virginia beach. And it, I heard they had winners there. So I was going the other direction. <laughs> I, I went to Hawaii. <laughs> and were they, okay. So, were they called mobile units or were, was it just groups back then? No, so that you had the groups and you had mobile units, which was kind of the deployable okay. stuff. And then you had the training units, you know, and, okay. and, and then the school. And that was kind of the EOD community. Um, so, yeah, the mobile units is where you went on your first, C, uh, you know, sea duty tours. And from there, you either formed up and you went on shipboard detachments or mobile teams, as they were called. Um, or you went on, on TAG jobs, TAD jobs. They'd for, either send you somewhere to augment a team that was there, or they put a team together and send you out to go do something. And then you'd come back and they might go do something else or, a, a shore debt was going through a team training cycle. And then they needed somebody to come in and, and babysit where, you know, their area of responsibility. So you'd head out and, and, you know, babysit a short debt for a month while those guys went through team training. So there was just a lot of stuff okay. going on. And, you know, and there were cat and dog kind of really cool opportunities. There was always secret service jobs that they would pluck a bunch of guys out and go send out and, and do those kind of things. So you stayed pretty busy, whether you were teamed up and going on a, a shipboard deployment or just island hopping and, and going to other places. One of, when, sorry, go no, ahead. I was going to say one of my the very first jobs I went on was a, uh, I spent a couple of months out on San Clemente Island off of San Diego doing shock testing on a sub on the Los Angeles class submarines. You really? know, we just lived out on the Island and, you know, set up 10,000 pound charges in the water for the submarine to go by and blow up and, and dove on, caught lobsters and abalone the rest of the time. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for, for those TAG jobs, did, did, 
you have to like, do they put together a team and then certify that team and then say, okay, you can go out and do those jobs or was it just a team leader and some random person kind of put together? Yeah. Unless it was a shipboard deployment, they kind of just put a team together and, and sent you out. Um, shipboard okay. deployments, they kind of went through the training cycle. And then as you came out of the training unit, um, initially the training unit would be the guys who certifies you as these guys are up, good to go. And then it kind of trans back, transferred back over to the mobile units. They set up these RMT detachments kind of thing. And then those guys would give you basically an ORE and, and, or what they call it, I think an FTX now or whatever. And um, yeah. then they would say, okay, yeah, these guys are good to go. Okay. Or if not, there'd be some changing around of people. You've seen that happen, I'm sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that uh, that's one thing that will not change is not, not every team is, is perfect at the time we want them to be perfect. <laughs> and it all comes down a lot of times to just chemistry. You know, it's like to get, yeah. to get four guys that are hitting all eight and can work with each other. And I'm sure teams are diff different now, but even with just four guys, it's a, it's a rarity that you find four guys who are really compatible and can work well together, you know? And, and when right. you do, you're like, man, this is the coolest thing ever. Cause it doesn't matter if you're, you know, shoveling shit. It's, it's still fun. <laughs> exactly. <Yep. laughs> After, so how long were you at, um, at your first mobile unit? So I, I think I was there right around a little bit about around three years or so. And that was kind of the okay. rotation you did three years of sea duty and then you came up for shore duty. And, um, so I, I had gone and done a bunch of stuff and then I went and made a shipboard deployment. I came back and at the time each mobile unit had what was called a duty team, which was the equivalent of the shore detachment for that area. And they stayed there okay. and they handled all the local stuff that came up. So I, I, I had made chief while I was on deployment and so I was the chief of that team and I did that for about a year or so. And then I came up for orders and, and good fortune had it. I got, I got sent to debt Bermuda as it was standing back up again. It, it, it had been a debt, they closed it and then they opened back up again. And I was kind of like in on that. Yeah. Um, so I definitely want to talk about debt Bermuda because hearing the, a lot of the, the debts that they had debt, Puerto Rico, Bermuda, like, you guys had some good ones and I, Oh yeah. 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 Those, anyway, those sound awesome. Well, and then back in the, the, back then there was all kinds of really cool EOD debts. There was Iceland, there was Bermuda, there was up and down, you know, Florida had three or four debts. I think, um, hell, they had a debt in Oklahoma that sounded weird, but it was a really great debt. Everybody loved being there. Interesting. You know, uh, China Lake out in the middle of the desert was one of the busiest and most fun debts ever. Yeah. Um, but they had tons of cool short debts. And, and that was the thing you, you went and learned how to become an EOD tech doing your mobile unit tour. Then you came in and then you really learned how to do stuff like disposal and, you know, demolition and, and you did the shore you know, duty responses and you worked with aircraft, depending on what kind of a debt you worked at. And, and you kind of learned the trade in, in that setting and you're completely autonomous from any kind of mobile unit support or anything. It's like, you guys got your thing, you go do it. Um, so that was part of the shaping of an EOD tech too. Until you'd been to a shore debt, you really you know, weren't, hadn't experienced all the, all the cool stuff yet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it is interesting how different it can be. So I, I haven't done a shore debt, but I, I did get farmed out to debt Mary for a little bit. So I assisted, um, for, I think about a month is when I was up there and it is, it's interesting because you get 
especially nowadays with all the extra rules that we have to follow stateside, <laughs> um, you're at a mobile unit and you think, oh, anything goes every time, right? And then you get over to a, a shore debt and you're like, oh, there's actual like laws and rules that we have to follow. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like when I go out on the range, I can't just blow shit up. I got to comply comply with the range rules and RICRA and environmental and you know all of that stuff. Yeah. And that that stuff was just sorting, starting to kind of come into place, you know, as as I was finishing up my my second short too, and and it's all stuff you have to live with, and it's part of the evolution. But you know, it's kind of the the, the old root and tootin' days were pretty fun too. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I'll, I'll tell this story, and I won't name any names or give a location. But we were um, we had this big old demo range, and we had a but at the time we had a bunch of smokeless powder to get rid of. I mean, lots and lots of it. And and yeah. that was before you had to like demo, you know, uh, I think they call it open detonation, treat everything. And you could just burn stuff. And I, I can remember sending the guys out there to do this shot. And then, I don't know, two or three weeks later, I'm in the helo and we're flying out to this job. And we fly back over this canyon that this demo range are. And there's like a three football fields long dick and balls burned into the floor of the desert. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Oh, we're such children. I love it. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, God, I will. Uh, Sorry, my watch heard me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's like, oh, when did he do that? You know, the helo pilot's like, what the hell? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if, if you don't give us uh, very specific things, we will find a fun way to do what we need to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Of course, I, 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 dis I disavow any knowledge of any of that happening because, you know, at this point, I'm like, okay, I don't know who did that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the hooligans. <laughs> That's great. Um, on your kind of backing up a little bit, but on your on your shore or on your not shore, um, your ship uh, deployments. How, so I, I, being in the Navy first, and I'm assuming probably having been on ships for a while while you were in the Navy, as you're trying to wait for your time to be actually allowed to even go EOD, um, how different of a life was it being the EOD team on a ship back then yeah. versus? No, yeah. that's a, that's a really good question. So it was really good. And, and but the thing you, we had to um, recognize then is you know, we had kind of like a special, special status, but at the same time, it's like, you can't alienate yourselves from the crew. You, you know, you can't be those guys who get to PT and hang out in their shop all day. And then as soon as the ship pulls into port, they get to go to the, their nearest short it and hang out and, you know, that kind of stuff. So we made a, a, a point of, you know, integrating ourselves into the crew. So like, you know, when it came time to pull into a port, they did what's called a log wreck, and the ship would send a message out and said, you know, we need to have this many vehicles so that we can go do this, that, and the other. We always log wrecked a big enough vehicle so that if there was a bunch of guys at the ship and they needed a ride somewhere, pile in with us and we'll take you. You know, um, uh, we need to set up a scuba diving class so when they get in and they're going to be in Guam for a, for a week, we can get some guys over there so that they can take a scuba diving class and go. We would set those kind of things up. Um, there was an after steering compartment that they wanted to turn into a berthing compartment. And we had a couple of guys. One of them was an HT and he knew how to weld. And we would just go back there and, and work for three or four hours you know, in the evening and, and help refurbish this thing so they could turn it into a berthing compartment. And by doing that, 
they were like, yeah, these guys are not assholes. They're part of the crew. And then, you know, yeah. our, our way was much easier, but it was still fun being on a, on a shipboard detachment because anything that popped up, if, if you were the closest guys to it, you'd go get to do this. I, I remember this one time we were getting ready to pull into the Philippines. This is like, okay, cool. We're going into civic. And there was a, a, a typhoon kind of bearing down where we were at. And it's like, that's okay. We're going to get into port. We'll, we'll, we won't have to deal with that. And we got this call. There was a, an FFG that had a 76 millimeter gun and it did a, a, a shot. And there somehow the, it was a cold shot and the round got halfway up the barrel and got stuck. You know, so now there's this 76 millimeter projectile stuck in this thing. These guys are chopping to the Indian Ocean. They can't go into shore. They ride the storm out, you know. So it's like, okay, you guys got to fly over there, helo down, you know, fast rope onto the ship because it's too big to land a 46 on or too small to land a 46 on. And then you got to unjam this gun and you got to do it because if you don't get done, you're going to ride out the typhoon on the tin can. <laughs> So we get there, <laughs> and, and and the EOD procedure for doing that was, you know, pretty prescriptive. I said, do this, do that. But if we, if we did it, we were going to ruin that gun barrel. Yeah. So we came up with a different method of doing it that was kind of like, okay, we fabricated some stuff. We basically created a big push rod that went down the barrel, and we took up tension with chain falls. I mean, with those those chains were like banjo okay. strings, and then we had a bunch of bedding at the at the breach end of this thing. So when this thing kicked out, it would land in a bunch of mattresses. It worked. You know, we pulled it off. We got on the helo and, you know, we we're like bouncing around like, you know, crazy. But we landed on the, you know, got on the ground before the typhoon shut us on and we had to ride that thing. So mission success, we're all hooting and hollering and everybody's happy. We sent off our after action report. Bigger than shit. We all got in big trouble. You assholes, deviate, you assholes deviated from the EOD procedure that was in the book. You know, it's like, rah, 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 rah. so we took our licks and said, that's fine. You weren't there. You didn't know what happened. But what's right. interesting about this is about three, four months later, another ship experienced that same exact thing. And the team that went out there called back and said, hey, you guys did that thing. How did you do that? And that ended up becoming the procedure that replaced the original procedure in the book. So, you know, we got our asses, awesome. asses chewed for doing it, but ultimately that became a procedure that actually worked. So, but, but that's back, pretty cool. But back to, uh, I kind of diverged there, but back to the shipboard detachment thing, that was kind of the fun part because you could get a call to go do something um, completely out of the nowhere. And, and it usually turned out to be something interesting or fun. And, and yeah. whenever you pulled into a, a, a shore, you know, a port or whatever, we typically went TAD to whoever the local EOD team was there and then worked with them for however long the ship was in port. That's awesome. That, that's pretty cool knowing that you're going to, you're going to make sure that you're not tasked by the ship while you're in port because you're, you're TAD to your own guys. Right, right. And but yeah, because otherwise they'd have us like standing watches and shit like that. But instead yep. we were going and working the range or going on jump offs or, you know, just doing whatever. Yeah. Just, uh, just hanging with the boys doing, doing a good time. Yep. <laughs> That's awesome. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> was, so I, I know the majority of the, the, the deployments were shipboard, right? Like, and then everything else, like you said, was, was kind of, just TAD of those, uh, TAD ops in after, um, the, the shipboard time, what, what kind of stuff would you end up doing 
TAD? Well, we got we got sent. A bunch of us got sent to um, Los Angeles for the '84 Olympics, and we spent you know a month there just augmenting the the local police guys and doing uh, peer searches and hull searches. You know, the the um, Queen Elizabeth was there. The I think it's called the Britannica, the the, the, the royal yacht. You know, we'd have okay. to do hull, hull searches on it. Um, you know, there was just a bunch of stuff. It's it's funny. We were um, leaving there, going through the L.A. airport, and it's like we got a four man team, but we got like fourteen pallets of scuba jugs and all the stuff we're loading on. You know, <laughs> United Airlines flight, whatever, to get back to Honolulu. Um, but you know, those kind of jobs would come up. I, I, I told you about the shock test um, job that came up. Um, there would be a, a number of different things would come up, and, and you'd go the opposite direction too. Sometimes the guys in Guam would need an augment because they're going to go out to Saipan and do a bunch of clearance out there, or, or a diving job would come up here. A couple of guys got to go on really interesting things. One guy I know, his name was Rex Ship, got to go do a thing called Operation Raleigh, where he and it was kind of like one of those I don't know those outreach things where young kids go and ride a yacht and go into South America and they go on a trip up the Amazon and places like that. And Rex got to go with those guys, you know, and it's like, Oh man, how cool is that? Um, (laughs) You know, there would be special ops that they would send you off to weird places. And it's like, okay, we're going to go in here and these guys are conducting operations and we're going to go in there and real fast boats. And we're going to, throw you in the water and you're going to steal shit and we're going to drag you out of there before they start shooting out of a, you know, at us. And <laughs> so there was all kinds of interesting stuff that popped up. That's, that sounds like a good variety of, uh, oh, of yeah. fun to be had. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and at the time we looked at it, all of it was fun, you know? Yeah. It, it, it became much more serious, obviously later on when we started going into combat zones and things like that. But in those days, even though it might have been a little dangerous, we all just thought it was the best fun ever. Yeah. Uh, as you, um, so you did, uh, Jet Bermuda for, um, a short at. Yep. Is it, okay. And then, um, what was, what was the other short at that you were at? I was, I was, at, so I went to Deb Bermuda and I, my tour got cut short there. It was supposed to be a three-year tour and about a year and a half into it, I got, I, I found out that I um, was getting commissioned. I made, made LDO. And okay. so I ended up going and, you know, getting commissioned because they always pull you out of wherever you're at when you get commissioned and send you somewhere else. Um, right. But I, I did a, a, a year and a half, I guess, pretty active there. And, and, and Bermuda was interesting. So from an EOD standpoint, we didn't stay that busy. You know, every once in a while, something would wash up on the beach left over from World War II, or we would go down to Puerto Rico or, or like Det Getmo at the time, um, you know, help them maintain the minefields or, or do whatever. But one of the things we did there was train a lot. And, and, our, and our specialty, if you will, was we were a, we were a pick debt, which is a parachute insertion capable debt. And of course, okay. we took we took that to the ultimate highest <laughs> level we could. I mean, we jumped out anything and everything we could get our hands on. Um, yeah. And it was so easy there because, you know, the Navy kind of owned the airspace. They owned the runway. So literally we'd hear the base helo, you know, turning up and we'd run down to the drop zone and stick our thumbs out and, you know, get a couple of jumps, you know, set the drop zone up real quick. And and then, and then of course, the, the, the East Coast guys would always come down there in the wintertime and, you know, spend a couple of weeks just doing jump ops and things like that. Cause our weather was relatively good. Um, SEAL teams would come through and, and we'd jump with those guys and, and, you know, do dive ops and stuff like that. So 
there was there was always something like that going on, but it was not an EOD intensive kind of environment, um, you know, from that standpoint. But it was it was a ton of fun and. And I learned a lot there just from being like the, the senior enlisted guy at the detachment. And, and plus, it was one of those teams I talked about four guys that just all clicked. You know, it was like that. And yeah. so we had we had fun and we'd go out there and, and some days we'd be diving all day long and you'd come in cold and tired and stuff. It's like those are some of the best days I can remember, you know, just yeah. just, just doing that kind of stuff. That's you said. uh Parachute insertion um, capable. I, I remember hearing that about Debt Bermuda. And uh, the one thing I I don't know is what uh, – so I know what that means, but what was the purpose of EOD guys having their own debt that is has that specific capability? Well, so Bermuda was kind of a, a strategic asset, and so all, of, all the P3 squadrons that deployed – um, out of out of like Florida and stuff like that, they always had a P3 squadron there because there was a lot of Soviet submarine activity in, in, in that kind of area. And it was kind of a, a hopping point between there and, and the continent of Europe. And it also it was also a, a NATO contingency base for staging nuclear weapons in the in, in the you know this is you gotta remember this is kind of Cold War era. Um, so that was kind of the primary reason we were there, but also the fact that it was out in the middle of the ocean. And if they had a ship or something like that, that had an issue, we could get to it easily. So we, we practiced that, um, parachute insertion capable, basically being able to do the EOD mission, but being able to fly a long distance and jump in and and do that mission. Gotcha. That, that makes sense. That's what I was thinking, but you know. Sometimes, sometimes the way I think isn't always yeah. what what it well, actually is. <laughs> well, and, and it was interesting because we we um, we practiced doing it in a, a bunch of different kind of aircraft. So you know, obviously, like C one thirties and C one forty ones at the time were the best. But we did it out of P threes. We did it out of you know other mm-hmm. kind of aircraft too. That's cool. Yeah, uh, that's got to be fun to to just like mix it up and just kind of whatever's available, go for it. Yeah. And, 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 and it's funny too, cause the, uh, like the P3 guys, they, they weren't really comfortable with that mission too much cause they had to like slow down and then they had to like mm. feather number one. So, I mean, they're, they're operating right at the edge of falling out of the sky speed and, and they would always kind of cheat. And when you jump out of the airstream on a P3, you usually got the crap banged out of you cause they're like going 40 knots faster than they should have, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. Were, were you doing that uh, mainly free fall or mainly static line? Uh, it kind of it started off kind of as a static line capability, but then as we got kind of we transitioned from the round parachutes to the square parachutes, then it became more of a, a free fall thing because we could be a lot more accurate on how we landed, um, yeah. the gear that we could carry and stuff like that was we could carry more gear with the, with the big square parachutes. And so we kind of morphed into that. And, and it was funny too doing some of the, the training for that. I remember one time we were training with a, we we're in a C-141 and we were going to do a, a Loran drop. So basically that's, it's way high. You know, it's like, I don't know, 25,000 feet. So we're breathing oxygen, doing all that kind of stuff. But you, you don't get out. It's not like you got a spotter there, right? They give you a green light and then you go. We got out. It's like, fuck, there's no island down there, right? There's, 
And so it's like, well, shit, that Loran wasn't very accurate at all. And then, you know, so we, we popped pretty high and, and, you know, and it's cold up there, but it's like, okay, I think there's something out there on the horizon. You know, we had, we had some navigation capability, so we made it out. I mean, just barely made it to land. I mean, we're landing right in the surf zone. Can you finally get into the island? Because the technology wasn't what it is today. Um, you know, so interesting training yeah. opportunities. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, you had uh, you had written down uh, something that I don't know if it was at that debt. I kind of assume it was, but uh, parachuting onto a ship. No, that was that was different. So that was that was out oh of, really? Yeah, that was actually out of the mobile unit. It was it was a submarine at sea, okay. and we we basically went went way the hell out in the middle of nowhere. Submarine surfaced, and we jumped in on it and put our boat in the water and went over to the submarine and got on. Then, then we had to ride the submarine for a week before they actually came back into port. But it was just like, how cool is this? We're like in the middle of nowhere and the submarine pops up. It's just like a movie, you know, it's like the, one of yeah. those movies you see, it's like, wow. Um, and of course those guys are like, Whoa, you know, you know how it is. You see somebody parachutes yeah. onto your ship and it's like, and it was really cool. And, and so we just worked with that crew and we did training. We did some IED drills and things like that on a submarine, which was pretty interesting as well. But I just, it's kind of just one of those things that when I'm sitting in the old folks home, I'll, I'll probably still remember what it looked like flying in on that parachute or, you know, on that submarine. Yeah. I I can imagine that. That'd be super cool to like look all around and just see water. And then this one little, little blip yeah, yeah. <laughs> coming up. That's cool. Yeah. And, and, and they didn't have any boats or anything in the water. We, we, we threw our own boat out and then, you know, we went over to it and, deflated it and stuffed it down in a hole and that's awesome yeah uh after you well once you once you made ensign and um and left uh the debt where'd you go after that so so i went via uh, pensacola i went through a knife and fork school as it's called and then i ended up at uh, training unit one you know, and, okay. and so I show up at training unit one and the first thing they do is say, you're going to be the conventional WEPS division head, you know, and that's where we taught all kind of the surface ordinance stuff, the IED stuff, the ground ordinance, all that kind of stuff. And, um, really good crew there. And I said, well, hell I'm, I'm here. I might as well learn how to become, you know, cause my job wasn't to become an instructor. It was just to kind of manage the division and keep the curriculum going and all that stuff. But I said, what the hell I'm going to, I'm going to get qualified to be an instructor. So I started teaching classes and stuff, which actually coincidentally worked out to my benefit. It wasn't intended, but when they started saying, you know, it costs a lot to send guys from Guam or, or from the Philippines to come back here for team training. Why don't we send a mobile training team out? It's like, and so we like gather up a couple of guys. You guys are going to go spend two, <laughs> you know, three months out in the Philippines. I'm like, I, you know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but if I hadn't been qualified as an instructor, then I probably wouldn't have been able to do that. <laughs> you know, so. Right. Yeah, so oh, that's then, pretty cool. Yeah. And I, I did that. And then, um, then they moved me over to the dive um, boats division and we were just, at the time, the community was starting to ramp up Mark 16, you know, and so we were teaching the Mark 16 courses and we were teaching the Mark 16 dive soup courses and, and getting people spun up. We were transitioning out of a, a rig they called the Mark 6. I think Mahone talked about that a little bit when he was in there. It was also called the Green Death. So it was nice to be able to get into the Mark 16 and, and start learning how to do that. And it was a whole new skill set. I mean, running the watches as a dive soup, that wasn't something that we were accomplished that as, as EOD guys. So, you know, we had to learn how to do that. And 
you know, and, and, and mixing gas, you know, that was something we hadn't done a whole lot of. Yeah. So those were good times. How was it when uh, the Mark 16 came out and everybody started diving it? Was it one, did the Mark 16 run pretty well? And then two, did, uh, was everybody like, after they started using it, was everybody pretty positive about it? Oh, yeah. And especially those who had dove the Mark Six. I mean, it was a night and day difference, you know, and, and once you learn how to use it and, and also learn how to take care of the rig, because it had its kind of peculiarities initially, sometimes the sensors would go bad and, you know, you know, I didn't know how to read that kind of stuff. Um and, and we had a couple of guys that, you know, got hurt. I mean, they, you know, took an O2 hit or, or something happened. And we had a couple of fatalities, even um, guys just went out and then didn't come make it to the surface in, in time. So it's like anything else. There's a learning curve associated with it. But now I, I think it's pretty much mainstream. I mean, guys just know how to do that as easy as breathing, at least in the, you know, the yeah. MCM world. Yep. Yeah. It's, it, it's still, it has a mystique about it. Kind of like, you know, I think sometimes people talk about it as if it were like the Mark six, but without the actual end results of yeah. from what I'm hearing. Uh, yeah. and, I, and I think that might be a byproduct too, of we've spent so much time focusing on our, our moving and shooting and, and handling IEDs and doing all that kind of stuff. We, we haven't spent a, a broader focus on underwater stuff. So now people are, becoming familiar with stuff they haven't probably played with in a bit. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a lot of people and I don't want to say I'm one of them, but I might be one of them that, uh, have the exact required amounts of Mark 16 dives for the majority of my career. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah it, it, is, it, it kind of depends on where you're at too. You know, what, what things you focus on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do remember being in Guam, you know, granted as a new guy, that was my job to do one, whatever I was told, but I, I was the diver, right? Cause I'm not proficient really at being a supervisor of anything. Cause you're a new guy. Right. Um, but I remember I, I, I also spent some extra time in underwater. Um, so I got pretty decent at building the rig. I, and the more I built the rig, the more I actually understood how it actually works. Right. And that gives you a confidence that when you're underwater, you're like, okay, if something's happening with these manual overrides, I can actually take care of myself and get to the surface without craziness. No, and, and you know, that's that's a huge point. And, and, and that kind of spills over into a couple of other areas. I, I don't want to derail the conversation, but it's it's a good segue. Um so as as a civilian, I'm, I'm working at the EOD Detective. I think that's what it's still called. But um, and I and I noticed there's you know there was a bunch of engineers who are like doing stuff and they were developing technology and things like that. And I had a bunch of techs and they would go down on the range and they would do tests and stuff. And and that's when I started recognizing, you know, the techs are doing these things because that's what they know how to do is they know how to blow shit up and then they want to see what happens and then they go back and they sort of regroup and do it again and until it works. And the engineers are busily doing calculations and stuff like that, but they kind of really don't know what the end game is, how how it's going to be applied. And what I found out was by teaming those guys up, teaming the engineers and the techs together, you know, the engineers kind of said, you know, I'm designing this thing and now I know how it's going to be used. So I got to make it, you know, so somebody can carry it and they can turn it on while I got gloves on. And the techs were like, man, if I learn how to do a little bit of math, I can only, I can get away with doing like two or three shots instead of doing 15 shots and, and come up with the same result <laughs> and bringing those two guys together. So they understand what the end game is. 
it makes it much more easy for them to develop an approach to doing it. Kind of what you were talking about with Mark 16. Once you figured out how the rig was, it wasn't so scary. Yeah. I, it's funny you mentioned that because we were just talking about in this course, talking about that in this course that uh, I was doing this week. And, uh, and it's been brought up uh, a few weeks ago. I was talking to somebody and we were talking about why, why it is that, EOD techs can make pretty good money at the labs when we're not the smartest people there, but all of it kind of ties in because it all ends up in, you need that person to be able to tell the people who are really smart that can actually figure out the right mixes, the right combination of this and that, the, the engineering to put this here and that there to make it work. But then you need that person that can say, okay, I, I appreciate what you did, but that's too heavy or right. that doesn't fit the size or, you know, it, like it's, it's interesting. That's, that is uh, whether you're active duty or, or out having that person that knows what the end result and how it's going to be used is, right. is vitally important. And, and, you know, that's, that, that's as I, my career went on a little bit, I, I ended up at, at, at China Lake as the director for energetics. And I had 750 rocket scientists, engineers, um, polymer chemists. I mean, these guys are world-class analytical chemists and, and that, and they're PhDs. And I was just like, shit, I, I, I <laughs> you know, I, I can't even pronounce some of the words that they're using to throw around. But at the end of the day, my knowledge of how these things are applied and, and the, you know, the end result and that kind of stuff gave me the credibility I needed to be able to lead these guys. And, and also the yeah. fact that it's like, I, I made my job not to try and figure out what they're doing, but to give them the opportunity to do the things they do better. So I became the guy who mm -hmm. enabled them. I got them money. I kept the bullshit away from them, you know, and, and, and kept them focused. And, and, yeah. But that's that's the things we learn to do as as EOD guys. You don't have to be the smartest guy. You just have to apply a little bit of farmer logic, right? <laughs> that's that's very true. <laughs> um, so at, at the training unit, I know I've heard from from other guys that uh, yeah, it, it was set up a, a little bit differently than it than it kind of is today. Um, what was the general like scheme or timeline that that teams went through and and what you guys did there? Uh, if I remember right, you know, it's been a while, but um, a team would typically come through and spend probably six to eight weeks, you know, going through the cycle. And, and it was just kind of just like going through school. You'd start off and you you start off with surface kind of stuff. You know, and they just run you through some basic refreshers, and then they just give you do drills and drills and drills, and then you'd go into the underwater side, and you do limpet drills, and you do mine, you know, mine countermeasures, mine recoveries, things like that. Um, you'd go do the air ops thing, and you'd you'd go jump out of airplanes, and you'd throw boats out of airplanes and chase after them. You do kind of all the mission areas, nukes, all this kind of stuff. And you once you did all these kind of things, they threw a couple of exercises at you that brought everything together. You know, you might jump into a place and do a mine countermeasures op or do an IED drill, and you know, with a, with a nuke component to it or something to test you out. And, and But it was kind of compartmented until you got to the end. And I think the – and we actually started morphing this um, the last time I, I was at the training. The second tour I did at the training was that we started running scenarios where teams were put together – 
and they had all their gear and a scenario would pop up, but it might not be a nuke scenario. It might be an IED scenario and they would respond. And then the next one they got might be an underwater scenario. So we started exercising more at the team level, kind of like, here's you are, here's your, all your stuff, whatever pops in, you're going to react to. So that, that morphed into that over time. Okay. Nice. After the, the training unit, where'd you, where'd you go? So I, I left the training unit, and um, so now I'm I'm a lieutenant. I think I'm a lieutenant by this point. So I go to Det China Lake because I always heard that China Lake was like one of the best kept secrets in the EOD community. It was an R and D place. There was all kinds of new weapons going on. It was a double detachment, you know. So we had like eight guys there. And if you want to get involved in like doing render safe procedures, seeing new technology, working with engineers on weapons development. Tons of demo. I mean, you had the big disposal ranges and stuff. That's where you want to go. So I, I packed up my longboard, everything I owned in the back of my Jeep. I show up at China Lake. I'm driving down the hill, and it's it's like the 3rd of January or something. And I'm looking, and it's like, it's fucking freezing here. The wind is howling. <laughs> the, 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 the entire desert floor is covered with this alkali stuff, and it looks like ice. And I'm like, what have I done? You know, <laughs> I, I drive into this little town of Ridgecrest, and luckily I, I took the back road in because all there is is like a, a subway, uh, a dirty bookstore, a car parts place. And it's like, is that all there is? You know, so <laughs> anyways, as, as it turned out, it was like one of the best tours I had my whole time. It, it, it turned out to be a really cool place to go. But yeah, so I did, I did three years at China Lake. Um, you know, and, and I learned a ton. Um, had, had I worked with some really good guys, had good teams, worked with some really cool scientists on on weapons programs, and, and some of them got fielded, some of them didn't get fielded. A lot of like, um, you know, black projects, if you will, de- developing stuff. It's like, holy crap, they're making a, a thing that could do that. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know, those kind of things. And, and and we still had some some good fun jobs too. I mean, we got called out on a job one time to go over dive Lake Mead because some maniacs raided a construction site and stole a bunch of dynamite, and then they drove their car off of a cliff into the Lake Mead with all this dynamite in it. So, you know, we're out there diving in Lake Mead in Las Vegas, you know, recovering dynamite from a car wreck because the Air Force didn't have the dive capability, so they asked us to come help them. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. But it was it was a good I, it was a good place to be. Trying like was. I, I can imagine that you did some pretty big demo out there. Um, what what kind of large shots did you do? So just about every, I think about every month we would do a, a, a kind of a D-mill shot because there's so much stuff going on. And they actually make explosives there. They do all kinds of you know energetic material, rocket propellant. They make all that stuff. So every month we would probably have a, two to three days of just doing demo and we'd set up these pits and they're probably like, I don't know, 10,000 pounds, you know, shots in, in each of these pits and, and we'd pop them off. And every once in a while we get something big in there. I think our small range limit was like 250 pounds. That's where we went and trained our, our demo our disposal range, if you will, um, was about 50,000 pounds net explosive weight. But then we had other places where we could go if we needed to do something big and, and I was fortunate enough to be involved in, in one shot. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't a disposal shot, but it was a shot. We built it up, and um, it was 500,000 pounds net explosive weight. It was a That's big, awesome. It was a big shot. It took almost two <laughs> months just to build it. 
<laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, yeah. And then, it, then it took three years to clean up all the kickouts from it, you know. But um... <laughs> that's great. Yeah, yeah. The, I was assuming that that uh, number would be pretty large when you said our small range is two hundred and fifty pounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a lot of places can say their small range is that big. <laughs> right, and, and and we just got you know kind of got spoiled to to being able to do that kind of demo. And, you know, and, and we'd have situations where like, you know, McAllister is a big uh, storage place and they, they said, well, we've got these two 10,000 pound spheres of comp B or, or HMX or whatever it might've be. They would ship those things in and we'd like cap into that sucker and, you know, blow that thing up. You know, it's like, that's awesome. Oh yeah. Some, some real, real big demo. Um, but more importantly is that's where you learn how to like, set up a shop to optimize you know you don't have yeah. to cover everything with all of the explosives like if i use stuff that are that are donor charges if i set this shot up correctly i can get all this crap with minimal use of demo and that lend itself to later on when we went into places like iraq iraq and afghanistan it's like i got a cave full of shit and i got a 20 pound haversack how am i going to do this you know right yeah absolutely that's my uh experience like being in the Philippines and doing some larger, uh, you know, I think we did anywhere from 4,000 to 7,000 pound pits. And I think the small, well, we did 18,000 pound shot. And I think the largest we did was a 32,000 pound yeah. and it hundred percent, you know, it's, it's actually, it was cool. One off we did, we had three 7,000 pound pits and we did a, a, a little bit different method, right. To see how one was like an extreme, how little demo can we use? Right. Another one was just how do Americans put demo everywhere pit. And then another one was how do Americans that are not trying to waste all of their demo set it up? <laughs> right, right. So it was, it was awesome to see how, uh, you know, and that one happened to be no kickouts, which we were very thankful for. Oh, yeah. it, it's awesome to see that, Exactly that, that, you know, it, it really, you're hundred percent right. It really did. As I started doing more and more drills where, you know, you're coming in, there's okay. There's a cache. Here's your three sticks of demo and tiny <laughs> bit of debt cord. Right. Figure out how and, to get rid of it all. <laughs> exactly. And you can even just kind of visualize, okay, I see those, those need to set up this way and I can take this and lay it across that. And I can use that as a donor. And, and you can just kind of like, put it all together and you go over and you do it. And then somebody who hasn't had that experience is just kind of like, I have what no are you idea. Doing? What you <laughs> well, and, yeah. you know, and that's a, that's an important point. I, I, as, as the, the short ets have kind of diminished and, and now the, there's so much more environmental kind of control over disposal and things like that. Um, I think it's a skill that um, has kind of perished. Uh, and, and, and as folks quit, you know, doing the Afghanistan and Iraq kind of things, that skill is likely to be lost. So that's something, you know, as a training unit guy or, or it's, that's still active, maybe that's a, a banner you can wave is we still need to keep those kind of skills and to keep working them and, and learn how to do this stuff. Um, funny, uh, funny demo range story uh, uh, kind of along those lines. So uh, this is back at mobile unit one and I'm, I'm, I'm a new chief and I've been assigned as the, the, the D boss. I'm in charge of this whole big disposal office. And we used to go up to this range up in the Makua Valley and we, you know, set up these big shots and stuff. And we had this one 
job where we had like 800 Jado bottles we had to get rid of. You know, those are the rocket things that they strap to airplanes, give them. Well, yeah. and, and with a Jado bottle, you've got to poke at least two holes in it because if you only poke one, that sucker's taken off. And, and, the, <laughs> and the way we did this is we did it with thermite grenades and we rigged thermite grenades with deck cord. So when you pop the deck cord, it blew the spoon off of the thermite grenade and then it burned a hole. And in the and the thing was, you got to have two holes in this thing. And we had this um, lieutenant commander, I think he was an ex-SEAL readiness officer at the group, and he was like, fuck you guys, you're only going to get enough thermite grenades to do to do one per. Just, you know, I'm like, boss, you know, if we do that, we're going to have problems. That's all we got. You got to do it. I'm like, okay, but you're, you're going you're gonna to mark my words. We did it. And, I, and luckily, I, I was—I I knew what's was going to happen. So I said, we're only going to do like a few of these at a time because I, I knew it was going to happen. Sure enough, we had like 30 of them out there. Pop the pop the deck cord. Man, we had 30 Jado bottles flying around that whole valley. And everywhere they, everywhere they touched, they lit a fire. So that whole oh, valley geez. was on fire. But what was so cool about this, the poetic justice was, is we had a, a, a commodore at the Commodore at the time, his name was um, Ted McCarley, and I think Mahone may have spoken to him, and his his nickname was Terrible Ted. And, you know, so when they're explaining myself as to why the valley's on fire, and I told him, and, and I was like, I, 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 I told him, but, you know, he ordered me to do it, and then next thing you know, for the next five nights, that lieutenant commander was sitting up in the tower, camped out there on fire, fire watch. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, nice. there's a little bit of justice in the world, but but, <laughs> right. but going back to the demo thing is like that's where you learn about things like that, you know. Yeah, yeah. Poke, poke two holes in the rocket motor. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you, you talked a little bit about uh, uh, well, I should say we were talking before we started about uh, evolution of equipment. And from uh, the beginning of your your career to to the end, what did you see? You know, aside from we we did talk about the Mark sixteen being added and that that adding a huge capability along with uh, a significantly um, enhanced safety side of it. Yeah. Uh, what other kind of equipment did you see that increased? Well, so for example, um, you know, when we had to deal with IEDs, the, really the only tool we had at, at our um, you know disposal was a thing called the J Rod, uh, and I don't even know if you've ever even heard of it anymore. But, I mean, it was just this thing, and it 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 did it did its thing to disrupt whatever the package was and spread its contents around and allow you to have access to it, and that was pretty much it. There wasn't a whole lot of other stuff. But then as time went on, we got things like I, I don't know if the the pan disruptors probably already been you know mothballed now too but that came on um you know the titanium disruptor some of these kind of things the the uh the 50 cal de armor was another kind of like a mainstay rsp tool and and i saw that them develop special up purpose charges that did the same thing as a 50 cal but they were disposable you could just go set the charge knock knock off whatever you're doing um i saw some i saw comms gear get way better i mean we we start off we were using PRC 25s and 77s. And now the, I think the comm gear is all SATCOM, you know, high speed stuff that you can talk to aircraft. You can talk over the horizon, all kinds of great stuff there. Um, 
I'm trying to think of something, some of the other stuff too. Um, the nuke stuff, I'm sure, is amazing now. The detectors we had back in those days were kind of like, you know, almost like, you know, divining rods. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and some of the some of the MCM equipment, like the sonar. So when I first started diving sonars, it was the PQS one, and it it was just this big old half of a sphere. And you, you know, you had to carry it with two handlebars and it had like a million D cell batteries in it. Um, and, and, but you know, and and it worked, but it was a clunker. And, you know, if you're any kind of current or anything like that, you're just fighting with this thing. Um, and then the PQS2 came out and that was pretty cool because it was much smaller and you wore your little headphones and you could hear stuff and it was just like a little thing and it had a little option on it that you could do a passive mode. So if somebody had a pinger out there, you could listen for the pinger. And then as as I've kind of finished up when I was at Fleet Lao, we were looking at like acoustic imaging sonars and things like that. And I don't know if they ever got yeah. fielded, but I can remember doing the test on, on this prototypes and it's like... I was diving with this guy who, who later became a warrant officer. His name was Sam Pino. I don't know if you ever knew him or not, but um, yeah. Sam and I were up at Bangor because they were doing this at the University of Washington, and, and we were diving and and we were catching crabs while we were like diving along because you could see them really well with the sonar. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and and Sam had this bag of like I don't know six or seven Dungeness crabs, and somehow he let go of it, and the crabs all dispersed. You know, they all hold S, and the water was crap. You couldn't see anything. But man, we could find those suckers with the sonar because you could see them with the imaging sonar. So we caught them all back up again. And it's like, this is a good piece of gear. I think this, you know, it's going to go somewhere. And of course, I, I retired before it was ever fielded, so I don't know if it ever did go anywhere. But you know, yeah, just, we ended up. <clears throat> we we did get a couple of those. I think we're on a, at least at least a second, maybe third iteration of of that type of gear now. Okay, cool. Yeah, and so so that that's the kind of stuff that I, I've seen more from. And, and while you know, while I was a tech at detective, I saw you know some cool stuff being developed too, especially in the um, like in that kind of the IND arena. There was a lot of cool sensors and detectors and stuff that got developed. Yeah. Uh, what about metal detectors for for mine detecting? How did that improve? Everything got smaller. We we, uh, we used to use like the Mark, I think it was the Mark 26 and it was kind of an all metals locator and um, it was good, but it was a big old thing and it had a long boom on it and, and it was hard to operate and stuff. And then they came up with, yeah. I think it was called the mini mine detector and it was very small. I think it was actually you know, a copy of something the army was using. Um, when We okay. started using that and then a couple other detectors that came out that were like, um, you know, combinations of ground penetrating radar, magnetometers, multi-sensors in there. So you could look for stuff other than just ferrous material. And, and again, I don't I don't know where those all came out. A couple of clunkers came out. We got this thing called the Mark 25 ordinance locator that was supposed to be used for underwater. But mm-hmm. I mean, the, the thing was 10 feet long. If there was anything like 0.01, you know, knots of current, there's no way you could swim <laughs> with this thing. You know, yeah. so, you know, that's one of those ones where the engineers designed it, but they didn't bother to check with anybody to see how practical <laughs> it was going to be. So it ended up becoming a doorstop. But, um, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure there's better stuff out there now. I've, I've, I've totally lost track. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know just in, in my career, um, the the mine detectors, we've, we've gone from, just like you were saying, from, you know, everybody being able to have a a metal detector that was okay to now we've got like in your hand and cheap enough and small enough that 
you can carry your own basically GPR. Ground yeah, which is great because when you're looking for wooden pressure plates and stuff like that, you like, like to be able to detect something like that. Right. Yeah. Of course, then depending on where you're at, like if you're in Guam, that setting doesn't work so well because when you're when you're when you're on top of coral that has right. lots of voids, lots of you're like, okay. Yep. But I, I guess that that in itself is why we train in different areas because if you never train there, you don't have anybody that knows that, and then you know you end up going and doing something on an island and you're looking for things. You're like everything is ringing up, yeah. And you don't know why. Well. <laughs> you know, to, take a, to take another offshoot, we were we were I was with this group of guys from NATO, and they were um, we were in Cambodia. And they were um, trying to find mines there, and they, none of the technology is working. So they brought in these rats. They had trained these rats to be able to detect explosives, and they'd let these guys out. These were big old hairy ass rats, and they'd let them out, and they'd find that explosives, and then they'd get their reward, and they all come back in their cage. So we're out there for a few weeks, and the rats kept disappearing, and nobody could figure out what the hell was going on. You know, what are, are there snakes getting them or something? <laughs> Turns out the Cambodian villagers like big old fat rats, so they're snaking them and, <laughs> and eating them. <laughs> I mean, they spent, uh, they, they spent years training these rats to, you know, locate mines and stuff, but these guys are like sneaking them out of the cages at night and <laughs> cooking them up. Oh, that's great. Yep. <laughs> I, I actually got to go to, to Cambodia while I was out in Guam and uh, I, I loved it. It was, it was interesting, interesting place. A lot of history there, a lot of, oh, yeah. lots of great history, right. uh, but then a lot of really cool architecture and, and history. And then, but it, it is, it was crazy to see even when I was there, how many mines were still all oh, over. Yeah. And then there's, there's just tons of ordnance and stuff left all over. I mean, they'll probably never find it all. Right. Exactly. <clears throat> um, so let's see. We're, I think okay. we're talking well, about equipment. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's right. Um, so yeah, uh, the, the improvement in equipment has, has gone up quite a bit and, uh, and, uh, got better throughout your career, got better throughout my career. It's, it's interesting to see, it'll be interesting to see how far it goes. And really the, the, I think one of the things for, for us, and I'm actually, I'm literally just thinking of this now as I'm, as I'm saying it, but it'll be interesting to see, cause it, it seemed like throughout my career where uh, we were doing a, a lot of dismounted stuff and the, the focus was on getting, a quality product that was uh, lightweight enough that you could actually take it with you. It'll be interesting to see if they continue down that or start adding things back in. And, you know, now that we're in this kind of like flux phase. Right. I think it kind of depends on the mission. And, and I think also stuff that's kind of been left, not, not really advanced, you know, for quite some time because the mission wasn't so focused on that. I think those things are going to start coming back online. Like, you know, when I left, there was still a, um, you know, searching out the hull of a carrier for limpet mines was was the nightmare scenario that none of us hoped we'd ever have to do. Because it's like, how do you care, cover that much area to find these little things? And then when you find them, you know, they're all designed to not be able to do stuff to them. And so how the hell do you deal with all that? And it's dark and it's scary and you're, you know, all that other stuff's going on. 
but now with you know with the the advanced robotics and and with AI being able to you know help with like target discrimination and stuff like that, mm-hmm. hopefully they'll come up with some little small little mini bots that can just swarm over a hole and find something and self destruct where they need to. You know, it's funny hearing you say that. You know, if you said that 15 years ago, people would have said you were crazy. But yep. now, like, oh, I could totally see that. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, yeah, I. I I've, I've been involved in some tech, you know, swarming technology and stuff like that. And, and, and the technology exists. It's just kind of apply it to different mediums, whether it's in the air, the ground or in the water. Yeah. You mentioned uh, diving under a ship and that got me thinking. One of the things that you wrote down is uh, curious to me because you, you said uh, this, this was in the uh, Marianas uh, trench area, which yep. is, for the people that don't know, it's it's not a shallow area. No. Um, it's like about seven and, miles deep, isn't it? Yeah, it's crazy. And you said uh, an awesome experience that you had was being 80 feet under the USS Flint with miles below you. <laughs> yeah, well, and the water was crystal clear. So we went down to look at something. There was a, a, a vibration that they were experiencing. They wanted to figure out what was going on. So dropped me on a tendon line to go take a look. And I, I saw what it was and said, okay, it's this. And they made they made the, the adjustment. But I said, while I'm out, while I'm down there, it'd be cool to be able to like look up and see the whole length of the ship because the water was crystal clear out there. You know, so I, I you know gave them a two and, and, and I went down to about 80 feet. And so I'm looking up at this. And it's like, holy crap, I can see the whole length of the ship and all around me, I can see nothing but blue. And then all below me, is like dark blue. You know how it gets. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, man, I am, I am nothing. I am insignificant little bug <laughs> and something could come up and eat me right now. And nobody would ever know what happened to me, you know? Right. <laughs> but I just remember that in, in the whole feeling of like, number one, wow. And the other one is like, I ain't shit, <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's funny how the ocean can do that to you. Oh yeah. <laughs> Just... Well, being out there at, at night in the middle of nowhere, um, we used to have to do these uh, Zulu six Oscars. They were called ship attack drills, you know. And, and, and so we'd swim, and we could only surface swim. We couldn't go into the water. But if they you're, and you're swimming in Westlock, and which is a mating ground for hammerhead sharks. You're creeping along at night, and you're just waiting for like something to come up underneath you, and you know. And you're just like, okay, just, just kick and swim, <laughs> you know, don't, yeah. don't think about that stuff. <laughs> yeah. There, there's been a few times where I, I actually don't like doing just normal. You got to get your number of dives and your time dives in, in situations like that. Cause I think about that stuff too much. Oh, if yeah. I'm just out there in the dark water don't know what's below me my mind will just start going to all that if i have yeah. something to do i'm like i don't ever think about it i'm just okay search the ship search the ship <laughs> the, the, the ones i hated most were like doing in-water decompression on a shot line with mark 16 you know you're just dangling there like a worm on a hook <laughs> yes <laughs> yep <laughs> we we had a guy i remember this and uh if you're listening i won't say your names but it was it was too funny not to tell um we were doing a, a dive and um, I don't, I wasn't in the water, but all of a sudden he's like, he pops up and he's like, get me out of the water, get me out of the water. It's like shark, get me out of the water. And we're like looking around we're like, there's no shark. Like, what are you talking about? You know? And it turns out a remora 
had <laughs> came and just like lashed onto his leg, just trying to get, you know, yeah, just trying right. to get the bugs off. <laughs> and, <laughs> he thought it was a shark. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Oh, it was. It was it was too comical uh at the time. Oh yeah. Well yeah, I'm sure that guy probably got a nickname he'll never live down, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, you, you you cannot show a moment of weakness in this community. Somebody will exploit it. Absolutely. Yeah, and then it, if that does happen, then you you have to embrace it right away. Oh yeah, yeah. Cuz the more resistance just means oh, yeah, we're yeah. going to push yeah. harder. <laughs> own your shit quickly. Otherwise, others will own it for you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so you, you had mentioned uh, or you had uh, written down uh, close calls. So it sounds like you've had a few. Uh, you know, not not super close calls, but, you know, just kind of yeah. like a- afterwards, you're you're kind of like, well, that could have gone badly. Um you know, I, I remember one hour shore of Hawaii, and we're just on a, 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 an evening out, you know, going to go do some night dive and spear a bunch of fish, and, and we're snorkeling. Um, this guy, is, uh, I think he was a master chief at the time. Um, his name was Harmon Slappy, super good guy. But anyways, we're out there diving, and the current's carrying us kind of parallel to the beach, so we're like, fine, this is great, and we're, and we're filling up our laundry bags. Now we got all kinds of goodies. Meanwhile, the current's still carrying us, and we're quite a ways out, and we're going downrange quite a bit. And then it's like, okay, it's, we've been out there for like two and a half hours. Time to time to swim back to the beach and make it back to the truck. Well, we start swimming and it's like, we ain't making no progress. We're we're being carried along, but we're not making it any closer to shore. We're going and we're going. We're swimming our ass off. Both of us were pretty strong in the water. And neither one of us are letting go of our goodie bags either, though, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so after a, a pretty huge effort, we make it to shore and it's kind of like, whew. Love, both of us felt lucky to be there, but after yeah. we had enough, you know, 15 minutes to kind of regroup and stuff, it's like it, it turned from like, holy shit, that was pretty scary to lesser fuckers than us could have never done that, you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> turn it around. And then we made it, you know, like five miles later, we're back at the back at the truck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's like you were talking about uh, earlier, you know, where you go through those uh, those really crappy times. And then that becomes the thing that you remember afterwards. Right, right. You're like, ah, oh, went through that struggle, survived, closer for it. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, stuff like on the on the demo range, I remember we had to blow up a bunch of um it was called propylene oxide. And it's the stuff they use in fay bombs. And it was in 55 gallon rooms, and we must have had 150 of those things. And we mm. hooked them up, cranked them off, <laughs> gigantic fireball. And myself and one guy, you know, we waited like the half an hour to go back down on the range. And, and on, the, on the range where these 55 gallons drum doing, all the bottoms of the, the drums were still there. Everything else had been consumed. The bottoms of the drums were still there. And, and, and I was with a guy who um, later became a, a warrant officer. His name is Charlie Payne. I don't know if you ever knew Charlie or not. Um, yeah. Charlie was the first class at the time. So we went down there and we flipped over one of those bottoms of the um, of the propylene oxide barrels and for whatever reason there was a, some residue there and it, and with propylene oxide you can't really see it but we heard it and it went you know like a like a fire and oh, no. you never saw two guys run as fast as we did to get out of there because we just thought man if that shit is under every one of those barrels and and that little flame catches it we're likely to you know to burn out yeah. and totally didn't expect that. But, you know, again, as, as we walked away from it, it's like, it, it became 
dead serious, and then it went to kind of funny, you know, yeah. after you survived it. You know, so yeah. so things like that. And I, you know, I, I only had I had, I had quite a few parachute jumps, but I only had like one malfunction where I had to pull my reserve. But you know, as as at the time, you're just kind of relying on your training and muscle memory. But then once you get on the ground and you realize, well, as that one, I was only one parachute away from you know smacking into the water. That was pretty scary, right. you know. So those kind of things, and then the other other near misses were kind of like some of them were funny. I remember we jumped out in the middle of nowhere with a with a, a, a zodiac, and one of the guys who later on like became a dev group commando and did all this cool stuff was cutting lines and he stabbed the damn pontoon of the Zodiac with his knife. And so we're all sitting out there on this freaking half deflated boat. God, you know, you motherfucker. <laughs> but it's pretty funny afterwards. Yeah. Once you, once you didn't die yeah. from it, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. And there was another time where we were, we were working with the uh, SEAL team guys and, and we were developing how to, how to throw a boat out of the back of a, a plane and then everybody free falls after it. And, and they had this big parachute and, and, a, and an eight, eight thousand, five or an 8,000 pound release. So when the parachute hit the water, this release would go and, and it would let go of it. And that way it wouldn't blow the boat away. Well, this, this thing got out of the boat and we're all out under canopy now. And it starts oscillating. You know, the, the, the boat starts oscillating under the big parachute. Well, it got, had enough of an upswing that the the release sensed that there was no weight on it and it let go oh, no. at about 3,000 feet. And this boat just like, and it smacked into the water. And I can remember hearing over the comms, man, the gunner's going to be pissed. Because you know? <laughs> we had this boat fully loaded. It was a full mission load. It had comms, it had demo, it had weapons, oh. it had all this shit. And we spent... Luckily, it was the SEALs gear, so they spent like the next two weeks diving grids, finding their crypto radios. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Yeah. yeah, you hear about that stuff, and you're like, ooh, that's, that's not yeah, going to yeah. be good. But, you know, again, it was kind of like one of those things, and, and, and the immortal words that, that came out of it is, boy, the gunner's going to be pissed. That that lived on long beyond you know beyond the <laughs> event you know that became kind of like yeah. a, around around Fort Story that became kind of like the anything that happens like boy the gunner's gonna be pissed. <laughs> That's awesome. Yep. <laughs> I don't think we quite covered everything. We went to you went to sea. You went to shore. You went uh, to training unit. Uh, did you did you do a second mobile unit as well? I, I did a second mobile unit, so I go back to mobile unit one, and but I get there, and I'm only there for about a year, and then that, they decommissioned it and they moved everything, uh, you know, back to the west coast. So I, I was there to to shut the mobile unit down, and so this is this is I'm, I'm probably the only LDO who was ever XO of a mobile unit. And the only reason is, is because like when you're the last man standing, you know, it's like being the <laughs> captain of a one man submarine. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was kind of there to close the place out and I made sure, you know, we did a, an orderly drawdown because we still had, you know, mission stuff to do. And then, um, mm. and then I was lucky enough to, to, to go from there just right down the street down and I was able to be the XO of the training unit. Um, you know, but, but at the time the mobile unit had a pretty big, I mean, they, they had a Marine mammal detachment. They had an MCM detachment. There was a shore detachment. There's still, you know, shipboard detachments that we were sending out. So I kind of became an OIC of a detachment to the ops officer and to the XO 
and then everything got decommissioned. Then I went down the street and was XO the training unit for a few years. So the the training unit at that time was in in Hawaii. As it was well. still in Hawaii, and 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 okay. I think I was uh, there was another guy behind me, a guy named Lance Humphrey, who was who was the XO, and, and then Steve Dehart, I think, was the skipper, and then those guys ended up moving to uh, to San Diego. Okay, nice. Was there were the San Diego teams once the Mobile unit uh, moved there? Were they still? coming out to Hawaii for a little bit. Yeah. They came out to the training unit to go through team training okay. and all that. And, and, you know, and like for exercises, they'd have like rim packs and things like that. So they would come out and they would stage at the training unit. Cause we had quite a bit of real estate. I remember we had a, like a big old camp set up out there where there was Australian guys and, and Navy guys. And, you know, that turned into kind of a pretty cool event too. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> So how do you, well, actually backing up again, uh, why, why did you decide to put in an LDO package and, and go, O? so I'm at Debt Bermuda and, um, you know, the, the guys that I worked for there were, were really cool guys and I admired them. You know, I think one of your questions was who, who kind of influenced your career and a, and a couple of those guys, there was, a. Um, a lieutenant at the time, his name was Phil Balvocious. He was a, he was a, an LDO lieutenant. And then, then my next boss was a guy named Greg Peterson, another LDO lieutenant. And so we're doing an MRCI. I don't, I don't know if they still have those or not, but um, it was a, a mine, no. mine readiness certification inspection. So they come in and they, you know, plant a mine somewhere and you had to go through a full MCM op. It usually took about a week or so to do that. So we got this MRCI. And, um, you know, as things will happen on, a, on an, a, a, any kind of an MCM kind of operation, some things went to crap and we had to react quickly to, to correct them and get things going. And after we were done, there was myself, I was the lead in chief, and there was another guy at the debt who was just made chief. His name was Paul Hines. I don't know if you've ever heard his name or not, but um, I think Paul retired as a lieutenant commander as well. But both of us, you know, we're pretty quick on our feet and, and we had a situation where we were towing, we we're towing, you know, the, the, the object and our, our motor broke down. It's like in the middle of nowhere and the wind's blowing oh, no. and the motor broke down. And I was like, shit, we're backing down on this thing. And, you know, they're not supposed to do that. And, but I said, okay, quick, Paul, toss the hook to stop us. And then I figured out what was going on with the motor, reconnected it, got back up, got going again. And the, the OIC was a lieutenant commander named Joe McKinney. He was head of the MRCI team. Afterwards, he's like, you two guys are, you know, that was some pretty good seamanship out there in kind of a weird situation. I've been watching you guys. You guys should put in LDO packages. And I was like, yeah, right, right, sure. <laughs> you know, but then I got to thinking about it. It's like, man, they got better poopoos at the officer's club than they do at the chief's club. Maybe it's not a bad idea. You know, and plus I, had, you know, I'd seen Phil and, and Greg Peterson and I really admired those guys. And it's like, eh, the hell I'm going to do it. And and Paul said he was going to do it too. And so we both kind of did it together, went through the process, got interviewed. I mean, I, I, I came out of my LDO interview and I was like, yeah, right. I'll be lucky if I can keep chief at this, <laughs> you know, after that. But lo and behold, out of nowhere, and I'd totally forgotten about it. And I, I got a call one day and it's like, guess what, man? You're, you're, you're heading out in a couple months and you're going to be an ensign and you're going to go to be an LDO. And, and so I was the first guy in my year group. And then Paul was in the next year group. So he had to wait a year to do that, but he got, okay. he got picked up kind of the same, same batch. So I, I did it, but it was totally a, um, 
okay, let's let's just see if this happens. But you know, whatever whatever they were looking for at the time, I guess I had it. But um, and I also knew it's it's it, there's a couple of motivations. One of those is I can I can I can work for some guy, and that's pretty cool. But if I work if I if there's an idiot out there that I'm gonna hate working for an idiot, it's like why don't I become the idiot? You know, so other people, you know, at least I don't have to work for an idiot. I can be the idiot. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of just simplifying it, but there's a little bit of that. That's truth. It's like, Hey, I can be in charge just yeah. as much as anybody else can, you know? And I, and I did, and was given the opportunity. As you went through your career on the uh, LDO side, was it what you expected? I know I asked that about, was EOD what you expected, but you know, there's, there's a, a look at it. And especially like you said, you made chief and then went or made senior chief and then went LDO. Right. Um, was, was LDO everything that, that you expected out of it? It, it, it really was. And it, it, you know, had I not done that, I probably, I've always wished I did, but, um, but having done it, um, you know, I, there's, and, and and you probably know this, but there's as an LDO in the EOD community, there's a certain degree of street cred that you bring just by showing up. You know, they know you've been around. You know, they know you've been through a, pro, a selection process of some sort. So when you show up, it's like, yeah, he's the ensign, but he knows a lot of shit. So, you know, if he says do something, it's probably coming from a place of he knows how to do it because he had to do it too. Um, right. So that part was good. It, it, you know, the only... The only time you ran into anything, and it's kind of half-jokingly, is like when you deal with somebody on the phone. But even when you'd go on an op and you'd show up to the on-scene commander and you'd show and you'd say, I'm, I'm Ensign or Lieutenant J.G. Wheelock. This is my team here. They look at you and they're like, yeah, this guy's this guy's been around a little bit. He knows what's going on. Yeah. You know, so, so it's part, partly how you carry yourself. And the other, other part of it is, as I've learned, even as you become more senior and stuff, if you if you – Humility and competence are the two biggest attributes you can bring to anything. You know, just keep your mouth shut and and try and do a good job, and and you can you can win a lot of hearts and minds as opposed to coming in there and you know blustering and swaggering and, and then go botching yeah. something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's something. It it has nothing to do with. Well, I guess it kind of has to do with being an officer in a roundabout way, but. You mentioned, you know, uh, they'll look at you. Obviously, you've spent some time, so I'd like to say none of us show it on our on our faces, but we we end up seeing it on our faces if we spend some time in, right? So, even though it says ensign, they kind of are putting two and two together even before you you say a ton, right? Um, I on my last deployment, I fly off the carrier. And I go in and we got these two uh, E3s that are on the, sh- the carrier shore net, uh, picking us up, taking us to where we're going. And one of them's like, hey, so what are you on the EOD team? Are you are you the officer? And uh, he goes, uh, well, then the other guy was like, hey, man, like, just be quiet, you know, <laughs> and telling his buddy. And I was like, I don't care, you know. And so I started talking and he's like, no, I just mean like um, – you know, he, he looks, he, he didn't say exactly this, but he, he looks older. So he wanted to know what I was, you know? And he's like, seriously, be quiet. And then the guy goes, he goes, 
oh yeah, I guess, I guess he would be like a captain if he was an officer. <laughs> he's like, dude, <laughs> the guy just could not, he just kept like stepping further and further. Oh, in it. I just started laughing. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I get it. I look really old. And I was, I was fortunate. I, I, I guess I always kind of looked young. Plus I, I made chief. I was like, I think it was like 27 when I made chief. So I was kind of okay. younger anyway. So but, you know, the other part is our community was small enough back then. You, you, if you had a reputation, whether it was a shitty reputation or a good reputation, most people in the community knew who you were or had heard of you or knew somebody who knew of you. So so that kind of preceded you if you showed up somewhere, you know, because yeah. guys we went to school with either went to group one or group two. So they were on either coast. And so somebody knew you or knew of you. Yeah. That that actually makes me uh, think. How many people approximately were in EOD around that time? I I, I can't remember exactly, but I think it was. It, it, there might have been. I think just a little less than a thousand in the entire program. Okay. Yeah, something yeah. like that. I don't remember what it was. And then, it, it is crazy. We've always been a really small community. Yeah, and and that's and then you know most of the officers then most especially most of the officers that stuck around were LDOs and warrants there there were very few senior level EOD officers you know that kind of came later but most of the guys who were I think at the time we might have had like two captains in the whole community maybe three really? um you know and 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 most you know there were no LDO commanders i think some of the first guys that made LDO commanders were like dur during my time but now I think, every, you know, there's LDO captains out there. We've got all kinds of people running around. Um, yeah. So your 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 name and your reputation usually was pretty well distributed within the community. Like I said, if you're a shitbird, everybody knew it. If you're pretty good, people knew that too. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. One of the one of the things you wrote was, uh, and I I kind of paraphrased it down a little bit but just fun friends and common experiences. And I, I think that's actually an excellent way to describe EOD. Yep. Yeah. And, and, you know, those, even those bad experiences, like we were talking about earlier, it's like, it still forms a bond and the guys you went through those with you, you, I have guys that I haven't talked to in three or four years, pick up the phone and call them. And it's like right where we left off, you know? Yeah. You know, and, and just the stuff that you, you have done and seen and, and like friends you've lost. I mean, I didn't lose a lot of people through combat, but I'd lost a lot of people through car wrecks, um, diseases, just weird shit. And, and a lot of people have fallen off. I was looking at some Facebook thing the other day. They're like listing all the people that, you know, gosh, sure missed this guy. And there's like 30 people that I knew. It's like, whoa, I had no, I, I really hadn't thought that that many people. That's why I don't belong to the EOD association. Cause they have this thing called crossing the bar. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. I, it's like, I know those dudes. I don't want to read about that. I might be next. You know? <laughs> I love talking about common experiences that, the way we all think about things, <laughs> like <laughs> saying that and like laughing about it. Like some people are probably watching this going, what are they laughing about? <laughs> like, no, that's, <laughs> we've yeah. all got a little bit of a weird sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and then that's the thing that kind of keeps, keeps you sane in weird times. Um, I, I remember yeah. um, 
when I was going through EOD school, we had we had finished up. It, it used to be the first thing you did when you went through EOD school is you went through Huntsville, and and the first six weeks of that was they they called it screeners, and that's where they basically beat you to death and trying to get half the class to quit. And then after they did that and they got all the people they wanted to quit, you went through ChemBio school, and then you went up to Indian Head to go through dive school. And so we were doing that. We had just I just finished up the whole dive phase, you know, surface supplied, mixed gas, all that stuff, and um. It was like a winter winter day. It was snowing. They canceled school. They said, everybody go home. So like half of my class is over at my house and we're drinking like vodka and cranberry juice because we got off early and we don't have to go the next day because the snow is so high. On the news, the uh, uh, an Air Florida 737 crashed into the Potomac River. You know, it was Air Florida Flight 90. And next thing you know, we're down loading up gear and up in the middle of the night diving into the Potomac River in, in a blizzard you know, after this plane wreck. And then, and it was like that for the next few weeks and they brought in surface supplied and stuff, but I can just remember the, the dark humor. They had two surface supplied stations set up and the water was like diving in coffee. You couldn't see the end of your nose. And so the, the dive tenders said, and the only way you found stuff is like, you'd go along and you'd kind of walk a grid search that they managed from the surface. And if you found something, it's like, it could have been an arm. It could have been a head. It could have been anything. And then you let the surface know, well, we, we thought it would be funny if we walked these guys into each other. Because, you know, when you grab something, then it moves. But sure <laughs> enough, man, you hear this screech come over the over the comms. It's like, ah, I found something. Oh, fuck, it's moving. You know, and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. And it's like oh probably God. the most somber situation you could ever have because we're recovering like parts and pieces of dead people. But at the same time, you've got to have that dark humor to to keep yourself yeah. from you just becoming so bummed out you couldn't function. Right. Yeah, I, I'm actually <laughs> <laughs> see look Sorry, at that, you. Look that, at that, you. That one. Cause I <laughs> I can one hundred percent see like topside just like <laughs> Hey, uh, hey, let's, let's, let's do it. Let's you know, it. exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, it's 100% true. I mean, like, you, I think people confuse doing that with not respecting. No, and no. that's not the case at all. No. You know, like, there's, I, I think people in not just our community, but people like, like the EOD community, these smaller communities, because we are so close to each other we when we're in those situations you, you do you 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 understand that that very easily could be someone around us right Absolutely. and but at the same time just like you said if if you go if you focus on that part too much it gets it gets too heavy and you do have a job to do and so you you try and find those ways to to bring yourself back out and and then be able to to move on a few more hours or days or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like almost anything. You know, you're 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 walking down range on you what you know is going to be some sort of an IED or they're trying to suck you into something and, and shoot at you or whatever. And you're you're being serious, but you at the same time there's somebody cracking a joke and, and over the comms. And that helps you to say, okay, I'm scared as fuck, but I also know that these guys are back there. They're with me and I'm just going to go do exactly. this. You know? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Just, just knowing that somebody's there for you. Yep. And, yeah. and, and having that dark sense of humor. I, I, I remember hearing one of your podcasts and they were talking about a guy who 
well, got blown up, but he survived, but he lost his eyesight. And, and that, that guy was a guy who worked for me at Detective, and he came back, and of course, he, he lost his sight. Good, good guy. But man, he's just like, ah, this is great. I'm going to learn how to play the guitar and get a cup, man. I'm going to, I'm going to make it big, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to love that, you know, because other people would just be, oh, woe is me. And he was just like, I'm going to make the best out of this I can. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've heard that from, from a lot of guys who have gotten injured in one way or another. And I, one of the, one of the, oh man. Okay. For, for the guy who hears this and, and didn't do well in this scenario, I'm sorry, but it's too good of a story not to share. Um, so a guy was doing his master board and, uh, he's, you know, talking about where his like exclusion area is. And he's like, yep, you know, this and that. And then he's like, okay, and we're going to be, our CP is going to be set up in this location. And everybody's looking at it on the big screen. And they're like, well, how are you going to get to your CP location? He's like, oh, we're going to take this road. And they're like, but that's, that's inside the exclusion area. He's like, well, I'm only going to be in there for just a minute. And one of the guys had, had, stepped on on something and and lost his leg below his knee so he takes his his you know stump and throws it on the table and he's like yeah that's what i said too (laughs) and he was just like oh Oh, man i've I've got i've got a horrible off story to cover it or or story to tell about um a master board so you you know they're pretty grueling they're 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 involved Mm -hmm. everybody kind of like dreads them and stuff and this was kind of early on in the process because at one time master birds weren't that hard, but then they started becoming hard. And we had this guy and he was a, a lieutenant and you could just tell he was terrified. He was nervous because there was all of us senior guys in there. And I think I'm a, I'm a JG at the time, but you know, I've been around JG and, and he's in there and you could just tell he's just so nervous. He's white, he's clammy, he's all this stuff. And I said, man, I got to do something to like ease the tension up in here. So I started asking him this question. I said, okay, I want you to listen carefully to me here. Take notes if you need to. And if you have to edit this out, that's, that's fine. I'll understand that. But <laughs> I said, if you're, if you're out on an op and you have to camp out and you're out in the middle of nowhere um, and, and you go to bed, you go to sleep at one night and you wake up the next morning and your head hurts, your butt's sore, your, your pants are down around your ankles, are you going to tell anyone? And he thought about it for a second and you could tell he's like deer in the headlights and he says, no, I don't think so. And I said, you want to go camping this weekend? <laughs> and it just completely, completely broke the tension though. And then after that, he was fine. But you know, you had to kind of throw that off weirdo EOD sense of humor thing in there to, you know, to, to you know, deescalate the tension a little. Exactly. Yeah, that's but bet, awesome. But I bet that mas- I bet that question's never been asked on another master board. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> oh, love it. <laughs> um, as you started getting to the to the end of your career, so you did you did twenty five years. Yep. Um, what was kind of the the thing that started getting you thinking? Okay, I think I'm I'm gonna retire. I'm gonna go on to something else. So you know, I'm at that point and I'm, I'm, I'm in zone for commander and I'm like, Oh, I might have a good chance of making commander. But I was, I was at um, detective at the time. I was, I was actually in charge of, I was a director at the Navy fleet liaison unit there. 
Um, okay. And I'm like, okay, so, and then they, uh, they had offered me command of the, the training unit out in San Diego. So go out there, be, be CO21, probably make commander. But then I started thinking, it's like, what then? What, what, that'll be a great tour and I'll love it. But then what am I going to do? Number one, I'm going to be in San Diego and I don't really want to live in San Diego my whole life. What kind yeah. of a job am I going to get? And it's like, I can probably get a job around here because there's lots of stuff in DC. There's lots of things in the area. So I just decided it's like, now's the time. And, you know, and it was a hard decision because I, lo- I loved being in, in the EOD. I, I, it was weird because I was never a really military guy, but I loved being in EOD. And I, and, yeah. But I also said, chances are, and plus, you know, we had just kind of bought, got a house and we had a, like a little horse farm going. And so if I do this, we're going to uproot everybody and I'm not going to geo batch it. So I just decided to put, you know, pull, pull out and, and did it. And, and then as it turned out, um, man, it, I couldn't have picked a better choice because I got a job there at the tech div. Next thing you know, I'm, I'm the department head. I'm this, I, I'm, I made GS 15 far faster than I ever would have made captain. You know, had I stayed yeah. in the military, I probably wouldn't have made captain, you know? So I, as a civilian, my career picked up and ran and, and it was perfect timing because Right after I got out is like when 9-11 happened just a couple months later. Mm. And then we're off to the races. The EOD community ramped up from being sort of backwater to we're at the forefront of everything. So mm. I, I ended up being in, in, in a department and we grew like five times the number of people. The budget increased exponentially. I got Milcons accelerated, all this stuff because the money was pouring into the EOD community at the time. So I'm right in the middle of this storm. Had I stayed active duty, who knows? Yeah, I, I like uh, I like not just hearing like the, the the process of getting out, but but the reasoning behind it because it's it's so interesting the uh, the different reasons why people decide, and and a lot of times it's not like a I just wanted to get away, you know. No. <laughs> That's people like doing this job, and uh, but. Everybody has, whether it's a, a family thing or a, you know, kind of, I think that's, that's an interesting perspective of like, okay, well, well, what next? Like, dude, where can I put effort in and have it keep moving forward, you know, and like moving on to the civilian side of things that worked out really great. <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause I, I think I was only like 45 or 46 at the time. So I knew I still had, you know, a, a career ahead of me. I just didn't know what it was going to be, but I knew if I, if I stuck around too long in EOD, then that window was going to get closed. And then, then I might end right. up being a migrant bomb picker or, you know, something like that, <laughs> which um, that's a great career for some folks, but you know, that's not what I wanted to do. Right. How was the process of actually getting out? Once you made that decision. Uh, and, and, uh, so a couple of years from now, l- listen back on this and see if I'm not right. <laughs> so about six months before, you know, once I made the decision, I put my papers in, I got a set of orders. It's like, okay, it's real now. Many sleepless nights, like laying there yeah. at two o'clock in the morning. It's like, shit, what if nobody hires me? You know, what if, what if they find out I really don't know anything? <laughs> Um, you know, so you go through that whole process. It's kind of like you're, you're leaving the nest, you know, and, um, and it's funny because I, I, I it got so weird. It's like, I, I used to be like a, a pretty good runner and, and running became, um, painful to me. And, and cause 
it, it turns out that as as a result of all the tension and all the mental anguish and stuff I was kind of going through, your body kind of you have physiological manifestations of that of that tension. Mm. And I went to this guy and I was totally like. Yeah, this is bullshit, but what the hell? I'm gonna go try it out. And he was like this holistic dude, right? And he's like tapping all over me and like, you know, burning sagebrush and shit. And <laughs> but he tells me, he says, and I didn't explain anything to him other than that, you know, when I run, it hurts now and it never has. But he says, You got something going on, serious. You got a big thing going on in your life, don't you? And I'm like, Well, yeah, I'm getting ready to retire. And he says, And you've got a lot of anxiety about it, don't you? I said, Yep. He says, Think of this. Your body is like has a battery. It's a power source, and it's a finite power source. And so you use that power source to do the things that your body does. You know, muscle muscle stuff, digestion, all these things. And if you have an imbalance, if you're spending a lot of time with anxiety or stress or things like that, you're using up power that's not being able to be used somewhere else. So as I've kind of scanned you out one of your legs is actually like three quarters of an inch shorter than the other and that's throwing you that's throwing an imbalance at you and um and he says and that's the problem is you're you're stressing about something and you're using more power than you're generating on in an area that's you know not useful to you and so think about that just think about that and as you're going through the stress think about the power source and you know some mantra or whatever and uh, and that'll be 150 bucks so i walk out of there (laughs) And I'm like, okay, great. Um, but I said, what the hell? I got nothing to lose here. I'll try it. And I started kind of thinking about it in those terms. And um, hold on here. Are you still with me? Yeah, I can. Okay. I'm, yeah. I, I had to re, I had to pl- pl- plug my power supply. Any, anyways, all of a gotcha. sudden things started getting better and I didn't hurt anymore. But it's because I, I had realized the thing that was bugging me. Um, but it was, it was a real thing, you know, I was, I was kind of stressing yeah. it out and internalizing it. And I think I've heard you talk about that with other folks here, internalizing anxiety, stress, whatever trauma, um, you pay for it at some point. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's good to, to actually let people know that that's a thing because I think for a, a long time, nobody really actually acknowledged that or like one figured out that that's what's going on with them. And then two said anything to anybody else. And so everybody, you know, I, I was this way. I, I was like, Oh, okay. I'm the only one. I'm the weirdo, you know, like it's a me thing. And no, it turns out that that's, I, yeah, that's a thing that happens. <laughs> well, and, and, and I was, you know, I wasn't quite as enlightened as that. I was like, all of you other guys are weirdos, but I ain't letting you know I'm one of you. you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I like it. So I kept it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so, anyways, so that happened, and, and I retired. And that, when I retired, I, I kind of thought I was going to have a job, but, but no offer letters had come. None of the official stuff. Um, so I took a month off, and I just did like stuff around the farm, you know. Um, it, but it got to the point after about like three weeks, I was I was doing shit like training the cat how to like you know, do stuff. And, and my wife came <laughs> home and she saw that. She said, you got to go back to work. You know, cause I had done all the things I could do and now I was just killing, killing time stuff. And then I ended up getting a job and I worked for like three weeks as a contractor. And then I got hired onto the government and I, and I started off in the, in, in the, uh, in a, in a job where I was kind of the international programs guy, but then all of the war stuff started hitting and then the, that sort of accelerated into, 
ended up being the the, the department head there. And, and so, and that was cool because I'm still doing EOD stuff, but now I'm doing stuff that is, is broader scope for the entire community. Things like, um, like when you guys have your master boards or whatever, have you, have you ever heard a thing called the technical support center? Yep. That's mine. Cause I always, nice. I always was like, when I was out operating, it's like, man, I wish there was some place that I could call. And there was like some smart dudes that knew about stuff and, and, you know, and it's like, why don't we create that? Because we're going to have a lot of guys calling about stuff that they may have never seen before. And let's start mm-hmm. capturing these after action reports and archiving them and, and, and making them so that they're searchable. So the guys can learn from what other guys are seeing. So the TSC started. And, and from what I understand, it's, it's kind of a fixture in the community. Now it's like an asset people draw on. It is actually just recently um, we went, we went down somewhere and uh, there was no approved procedure for um, an item that we were looking at. And so I reached out to, to the TSC and we, we didn't get anything back in time, but it worked out because we didn't end up doing it. Cause when I got down there, I was like, this is just too sketch the The way everything is unfolding. I just don't feel comfortable that we won't have an incident. Right. And right. Right. I don't want that. Um, but it's, it's working out because on the backside of that, we're trying to get, we're trying to get them and a, a couple other units involved to actually go back and put together some actual approved tested, you know, procedures. And then I've, I've reached out in, in other areas as well, um, throughout, throughout my time. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is, it's, it's good to have a, a place that, you know, when you're looking up in the pubs and you're like, Hmm, yeah. there's what I need isn't here. You can actually, okay, that's the phone number I need to call and they can, they can. Yeah. yeah Cause I mean, how many times have you run into situations like that? This ain't in the pubs, you know, and, and let me just talk to a guy. Cause it goes back to like, is somebody who understands how that ordinance works or how that whatever is, or they've seen an after action report that somebody else did in that same situation. Now I've got a resource that I can collaborate with. And so, and I, 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 you know, as I, as I left, it it was kind of coming up on step and it it was funny because first it started being used to kind of like as a resource for master boards and stuff. But um, then more and more, it started being used as a resource for like, I got some ops going on and I got some things in this place that I've never seen this. And it started being that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm glad to hear it's still working because back when I was operating, you call back the detective and you know, the phone would ring, but nobody would ever answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah so and it, actually it, when you say it, it uh, started with masterboards yeah. in my head, that actually makes perfect sense because most people don't know about things until their masterboard. Right. <laughs> and then as more and more people are doing the masterboard and getting told, Oh, this TSC thing is out there. Right. then they start, you know, you know what happened? You learn something during your masterboard. And then you start telling all your closest friends like, Oh, there's actually this thing out there that does exactly what we've been talking about for five years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, th- and that's kind of like, well, hell, if I'm going to be in charge, I'm going to like do some shit that I wanted to have done. So let's start making that mm-hmm. happen. You know, uh, another thing, and, and this is definitely not me tooting my horn. It's me saying, this is a good idea we had as a, as a active duty guy. And now it seems to have gotten some legs. So apparently there's a group up there at the um, detective now, and, and it's almost like a mobile unit. I can't remember what they're called. They're like X, X e- EXU1 EXU1 yep. that's that's me again um 
So when Iraq first happened, we went into a place called Talil. It was in the south of Iraq. And this was before all the bad shit started happening. It's like right, you know, right after we declared victory. And I sent a group of guys in. I said, because there's going to be a lot of people operating here, and they're not going to have any idea on some of the stuff they're going to see. So I sent mm -hmm. a team of like 10 guys into Iraq, and their whole job was to go through those magazines and start exploiting ordinance and putting together pubs, in-theater in pubs, you know, ID guides, you know, procedures yeah. and stuff and doing that and, and putting that shit out in, into the, into the operating world out there. And right after that happened, actually, while they were doing that, um, the, um, the IED things started ramping up and there was some, some Intel guys there from DIA. And there was a guy who was either attached to the Intel world or to SOCOM. His name was, um, his last name was Degord. We called him Digger. Um, I think he's an admiral now, yeah. but Digger was there and, and we hooked up with some DIA guys and I had some of my guys there and they were the first guys that formed were what turned out to be the sexies. Yeah. You know, so, and then I, I started deploying guys out of the tech div to be an element of the sexy because at the, as they grew, there was tech div guys there. There was Intel guys there. There was ATF and FBI guys there. There was British guys there. There was all these guys. And we found out that, you know, we called it weapons technical intelligence, post-blast investigations when they took down, you know, bomb building factories and stuff like that, getting the forensics, the DNA, the fingerprints, the traceability yeah. on the components and stuff like that. We were able to roll up a lot of bad guys that way. Um, and now that I, I don't know if there's still a fixture, you know, that are as far as the sexies go. But the other thing I said is the last time I sent my guys out to do in-country exploitation, they were like building shops out of plywood and blue tarps and, you know, commandeering whatever vehicles they could get. I, I remember them calling me back to go to Napa to get some parts for a Russian truck that they were using. Um, <laughs> but anyways, I, I, I went to Ditra and, and, and to NAVC and I got them to fund building these deployable, we call them ice containers, in-country exploitation containers. There were mobile machine shops. They were labs where you could do forensic exploitation. We got all this stuff together. And then um, I think Brian Brackey was the skipper at the tech div then. And he said, man, you know, we should start getting some military guys integrated into this too, because they need to learn how to, at the time, Navy guys weren't doing a whole lot of ordnance disassembly and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And and I had a really good disassembly crew. So we started building these detachments. And of course, I, I transferred out after that, but I was on the phone with somebody the other day. And I ended up talking to this uh, lieutenant or lieutenant commander, who's the ops guy now at this at this command. And he was telling me how, how it had morphed into it. And I'm like, shit. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I, I had no idea that it had gone that far, but it's like a mobile unit now. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty good thing. That's in, in a few different areas has, has permanent schedules now. And, yep. uh, and we actually, you know, work pretty close and, and they provide a lot of, uh, a lot of benefit to the, to the community. Yeah. But, but you know, that's just one of those things that came out of like, well, Rather than cobble together some crap, maybe I can get NAVC or some of these other guys to put some funding towards it so we got some real gear to go out with. And then it just kind of grew from there, which it's always cool when you see something like that, you know, kind of that you you planted actually hatched into something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Digger, he he was an admiral and now he just retired recently. Did um, he? But yeah, yeah. Um, you know, 
something that's interesting. You talked about, you know, you felt it was time for you to, to get out of the active duty side. And then you go into the civilian side and you're able to do these things on the active duty side, even as you move up and you get to, you know, the, um, commander and the captain level, right. You, you only have a certain amount of time at a job where you have to one, figure out how it's, how it's working, right. If anything needs to change, what you want to happen, get that initiated, hope that it either gets executed or stays right. after you then leave. Out of a three-year career, you've got like one year of being useful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as the civilian side, right, at the GS, you're able to sit in a, a position and kind of plan, execute, and and – reach out to those things. Do you feel like that was a, did that meet that potential? I, well, I should ask this first. Being on the GS side, was there kind of a, a, a gap felt that you from what you had when you were active duty. Yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. And, and to be honest with you, you know, in, in the final analysis, and even at the time, I felt like I contributed a lot more to not only just the Navy EOD community, but the Joint Service EOD community in that role than I ever could have as had I stayed active duty and been the CEO of a training unit or, you know, whatever capacity I was in. I, I, I really think, I mean, obviously I've done stuff that, the joint services still use, you know, and, and so that was very fulfilling. And, and the most important thing there too, is I learned stuff that I would have never learned in active duty. So, and it was a part of the, a part of it was the, the times we were in, but like as a, as a, you know, relatively new civilian, I was up there and I was talking to the house armed services committee and I was giving briefs to Senate staffers and, and, you know, I was meeting with generals at JIDO and, and places like that that I would have never done as an active duty guy. Um, and I was yeah. actually my contribution was shaping their decision making, um, you know, and that could have. And, 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 and as a result of that, I learned how to operate in that environment. And I never would have as, a, as an officer in the, in the Navy. And, yeah. that, and that benefited me down the road as I like when I transitioned out to China Lake and my roles there having operated in those circles and know how to navigate the acquisition system, how to do mm -hmm. a briefing to a congressional staffer, that kind of stuff helped immeasurably. That, uh, that one dirty word that you, you just said acquisition. Um, I, I'm being told by multiple people who get out, even if you're not trying to get in that realm, there's, there's some courses while I'm in that if I could get into just having that knowledge, even just having that knowledge and those, those couple of course certificates is, is almost a like, give me for some companies. Cause they're like, okay, you know, that process, we're not even hiring you for that, but we just want you to know that process because right. it comes up in like everything. Cause it is, it's, it's a process and, and, and it's, it's definable. So you can figure out how to, how to work it. Um, it's, it's, it's sometimes very, very frustrating, um, you know, how long it takes. And, and then you also see, I, I think one of the points I made on my um, little questionnaire for your, your is, is that the higher you go, the more you realize that 
nobody really has their act together. You know, the higher you go, you <laughs> yeah. realize that the guys in charge that you always looked up to and said, those guys will tell us what to do. They don't know what to do. You know? <laughs> yeah. So a, a lot of it is like, okay, uh, it's like, I guess I'm going to do it then. Yeah. That, that is so true. And I know that we've said it a, a, a bunch of times at every level that, you know, I, I know I've thought, okay, when I get there, it's all going to be, it's all going to be explained. Yeah. And then I get to that next level and I'm like, okay, it's not explained here. No, okay. It's even worse. That next level. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cause yeah. Cause not only is it not explained, but now you're responsible for more stuff. That's also not explained. <laughs> and then, right. Right. And it's, it, it really is. It's, it's, uh, as you move up though, keeping that understanding that it's, it's the guys on the ground that, that are tasked to do the thing that will figure out a way to get it done and just making sure that you can enable them to actually do that at whatever level you're at. And, and, and that's so important. And that's what I, why I would always encourage if, if somebody's done a career in EOD and have been an operator, insert yourself into some place where you can use that knowledge to help that decision-making process, because there's so many people that are decision-making places, especially like in the acquisition community and then the Pentagon and places like that, that have never been an operator. They're career civilians. They've never, they don't have any skin in the game at all. And it really, it, it influences how those decisions get made. Yeah. You know, and, and it's weird. Cause I mean, I, I looked around me at a certain point, all the guys that I came up with were in super influential positions. I mean, you've got Mahone and a double handful of other guys that are like, now they're career senior civilians over in places like damn neck. And, and, they're in DITRA, they're in the intel agencies, they're in all these places, they're in industry in various places. There's guys that are working at the national labs that are EOD guys. And now your network of guys that you used to call up at the mobile unit or the training unit are now in all these other places. And you can use yeah. that shared experience to make decisions in places where you could never touch before. One of the guys I worked for, he was a skipper of the, um, he was first the XO of the tech div, then he became the skipper of mobile unit eight and CEO of, of, of tech div. And then he retired it was a captain named Tom D. I don't know if you've ever heard his name or not. Tom, actually, Tom actually ended up before he retired, he spent a year as the deputy secretary of the Navy EOD guy. Really? Yeah. I mean, talk about a position where you can exert a little <laughs> influence. Yeah. Yeah. And it's cool. Cause I went up to visit him. I was back in DC on somebody say, Hey, come up to my office and you know, hang, we'll hang out for a little bit. And it's like, we go up there and I'm walking down the quarters of the Pentagon. There's the CNO's office. There's a sec nav's office. You know, I go in there and I'm kind of like, Oh man, somebody's going to find me out and kick me out of here. Right. <laughs> right. I, go, I go in there and his executive assistant comes up. Oh, Mr. Wheelock, we're, we're looking forward to meeting you. Mr. D's back in here. He'll, get, he'll just get off of a teleconference. Tom comes out and we like do the formal handshake. Then we go back into the office. It's like high five and, you know, noogies and stuff. He's like, check it out, man. I got a bathroom. I can call the uh, defense minister of England for my toilet, you know? So we're becoming <laughs> a couple of knuckleheads again for a few minutes, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. It's, it's, it, it never leaves that, that part of us. It no, sounds no. like, <laughs> like, you know, you, you, you remember Admiral Marneau, right? Frank Marneau. Yep. Uh, I'd run into him someplace. He's a freaking two-star Admiral, right? He's his old trick. And I think he did it to everybody. He was like, whenever you'd shake your hand, he'd try and pull you off balance. You know, that was, he never stopped doing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, 
I have heard that from multiple people. Yeah. Just a just a good guy, but you know, always kept that kind of that. There's a there's a twelve year old inside all of us that yeah. You never want that to go away. And it's funny because some people could be like, "Oh, that's him trying to to be like bigger than whatever." And like, no, that's the same kind of kid. That's the same yep. kind of no. Yep. That's awesome. Yep. Um. <clears throat> So what are you what are you into now? So I I, re, I retired. I, I ended up um so I was like what director for energetics there at China Lake, which to me was like one of those jobs like any day they're going to come in here and and find out I'm an imposter and they're going to sack me. But I, I had that job for like six years and it was really good because I had these like world class energetics people. We're, we're we're developing new rocket motor technology. We're come up with novel approaches to warheads and design and stuff like that. We're making exotic explosives and things. Um, and then and then I did that. And then you know as people shifted and kept moving up. Another guy took over that department and he said, hey, I like what you've been doing up there. I want you to come up and be technical director for the department. And it's like, this is a department of 1,200 people. And now it's not just energetics people. It's modeling and simulation. It's airframes. It's you know guidance and control, all of this stuff. And it's funny, a friend of mine, I told him, man, I just got this job as technical director. And he said, don't you have to know stuff? And I'm like, shh, don't you know? <laughs> But the point is, is the things that we learn in EOD, that that problem-solving approach to everything we do lends itself to anything you do. And so aside from learning some some of the technical stuff, it's basically just what's the problem? How do I go about solving it? What people do I need to bring to bear to put on it? What resources do they need? Okay, let's put this team together and let's go do this op. You know, it's it's that approach and it works at any level. That's, that's pretty cool. That is, that is something that I've heard at a, at a bunch of different, uh, at a bunch of different levels on on the outside, you know, whether it's working for the government or working civilian side of things is, is one of the things that one of the hard things that it sounds like, and obviously I don't have experience with this yet. Um, but one of the hard things for us is I think part of us being so humble is that we, we tend to not not think that what we did is translatable or useful on, on the outside. Right. And, but once we can figure out a way to explain what we did and how we approach things, people are like, that's exactly what I'm looking for. I'm looking for somebody to do exactly that. You know, and I, I've heard a couple guys, you know, talking on your podcast about like, you know, being, being the senior enlisted guy at the organization, whether it's a team, a platoon or, or whatever it may be. And, and there's some simple principles to adhere to. And, and, and they are, don't be a dick, you know, just don't be an arrogant dick. And I, and I actually heard like a three-star Marine lecturing a group of SES is first and foremost, as a new SES, don't be a dick, you know, but the, the other part of that is, is it's problem solving. Just identify what the problem is and then identify who the people you are that need to work this. And then what resources do they need to do it? And let's go solve this problem. And, and, and that's good leadership. The not being a dick part is the good leadership part, but it's it's but it's holding your people accountable when you've got something, but you have to have explained it to them thoroughly so they know what they're getting into. You have to have mm-hmm. comms up and down the chain. 
the input of the youngest, most inexperienced guy on the team might be the thing that saves the day. So you can't discount anybody, you know. And and the other thing is absolutely make a decision. Do not sit there and yes. just analyze something until you just can't do anything. It's like get some options, pick the best one, go with it. I I heard something, and I've heard it a few times, but I heard it again uh, today. We were talking about something with a, a few guys, or maybe it was last night. Either way, um, and they were saying, "Don't let don't let perfection get in the way of good enough, because yep. sometimes all you need is good enough." Yep. Yep. And, 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 and there never is perfection. No matter what you do, even if it's right. perfection for a moment, you're still going to have to go back and tweak it you know, as, as things go on. Absolutely. I, I look at, you know, now a lot of times what I do is, you know, with, with just this podcast, right. I'll, I'll edit the the video and edit the audio and I'm like, Oh man, that's perfect. And I have to just get done and then upload it because it's not perfect. And if right, I listen right. to it again, I'll be like, Oh, I can change this. And Oh, I can change that. And, but I'll tell uh, you what, if, if you, if you have an ugly filter that you can apply to my image on this thing, I, I, <laughs> that would be a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta figure out a way to uh, get those Instagram like horse face filters no, and stuff. <laughs> no, they're gonna look at him. It's like, damn man, he got old. You know, I need to help fix that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Check. You know, it's funny. I, I run into guys now, and back in the day, I was like, you know, I think I've heard you say you were you were a good long distance runner and that kind of stuff. And I was, yeah. I was one of those guys who was like, I was always the guy who was in really good shape, and I was the guy who could outrun everybody and do more pull ups and all that kind of stuff. Now guys see me, they knew me. It's like, you used to be in pretty good shape. You know, it's like, what? I'm still in pretty good shape. Come on. I'm 66 years old. <laughs> yeah, that, that, uh, that happens to me as yep. well. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, as we get, uh, kind of to the closeout portion, one did, is there anything that, that, um, anything that you wanted to share that, didn't bring up or anything. No, the other than that, um, for those guys out there who are, who are living it right now, I, I only thing I can say is just like, enjoy every second of this, every, everything you do, whether it's good, bad, fun, miserable. If you're working with people that you're having a hard time with, you're working with people that you love, enjoy and embrace every minute of this. Cause you'll look back on this as some of the best time of your life you know, and the people that you work with and the things that you did, if, if you think about it for just a minute, because we, we kind of get um, immune to it because we've been doing it all. The things that we get to do as part of our job that, you know, jumping, diving, demo, land nav, shooting, rappelling, all of those cool things. People pay a ton of money to go do those things. And we do it as just a part of going to work. You know, I, I used to just revel in the fact that it's like, I get an hour and a half to PT in the morning. I get an hour and a half to PT at lunch. I'm a paid athlete. Yeah. You know, <laughs> savor every moment of this. Cause once you move on to the next thing, you, you may not have that same experience. You know, I, I, I you ever hear of a, a rock guy named Warren Zevon? Warren Zevon. It sounds familiar. He, he, he died and he, he was like interviewing with Dave, the letterman like two weeks before he died. And they've, okay. you know, everybody knew it. And this is, well, do you have anything to pass on to the world? You know, they said, enjoy every sandwich. And it's like, yeah, words to live by. You never know when you might not get that next one. Yeah, that's very true. That, that, 
That is good advice. That is, that is something that's easy to forget um, when you go through the day to day. But I, I hear it from almost everybody that, that gets out, whether they got out because they didn't want to do it anymore. And then they found out, man, I, I really enjoyed being around those people doing those things. Some oh, yeah. of them crazy, some of them not. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, at the time, I remember we did this uh, clearance up, up on the North shore of Oahu. It's in the winter time. The waves are huge out there. We're, we're getting towed behind boats and there's just huge breakers and, and looking for bombs. Cause this is like a world war II dumping zone. And I mean, you're smelling outboard fumes. We ended up looking like refugees. Cause I mean, you're puking all day long. <laughs> you're out there all day long. Everybody's so skinny. You're not hungry when you come back in after a month of this, you know, we're just all skinny. Look like, you know, like we got off a Somalian rescue boat or something, <laughs> but I'm, it was fun. You know, I'm looking back on yeah. it. It's like, that was really fun. <laughs> That's awesome. Those, uh, those hard times take everybody back together. Like, and, and they do, they end up being, they, I can't think of a lot of those times where I'm like, man, that was super easy. No, you know, those times, no, you those are just, those in and out those times where you're like, man, that was terrible. We were in that, we were in that Humvee for hours and hours and hours and hours. Yep. Oh, yep. <laughs> I remember which ammo can I peed in. <laughs> I, 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 we, were, we were doing that MRCI and we were pulling the toe in. That was that eventful toe. We're going in all of a sudden out of nowhere, this boat comes right across us and he's going to run right over our tow line. And it's like, we're, we're in Bermuda and it's just like, you know, reggae music's blasting out of the cabin. There's like a billow of smoke, you know, all you can see is like red <laughs> eyes and, and, and dreadlocks, you know, and this thing is like, Oh shit, those Rasta dudes are going to cut our tow line. You know? So it's like, drop the tow line, zoom out there, head them off. You know, we, and we got them stopped at the last minute. And it's like, whenever I get together and, and our, I'm talking to those guys, that's like the first thing that comes up. Remember when those Rasta dudes were going to cut our tow line? <laughs> That is awesome. Yeah, but at the time it was like an emergency. Oh shit. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> no, I love it. I uh, appreciate you sitting down and, uh, and sharing a bunch. This is, it's been fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 I, I love hearing, you know, the stories that other guys have. And, you know, like I say, some of them I know, and some of them I like Bob Bazzini and I got to put a plug in for him, you know, selected him on that board and I didn't really know him. I'd never met him, but my dad passed away and, 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 and did, uh, Bob was up at the uh, dead at Bangor and we were there having a memorial service for my dad and I'm giving the eulogy and I look in the back and Bob brought his team up there and they didn't really That's know awesome. my dad, but they were just there to lend support. And it's like, I just was touched that, you know, those guys came up there cause my dad had passed and, and, you know, they were there to you know lend their support and I just thought that was cool. Yeah. So if you ever see him, tell him, I, I remember that and I appreciate that. We'll do. I'll definitely tell him. Yep. Yeah. Well, again, I, I really appreciate you, uh, you sitting down and, and sharing and, um, you know, I, I hope, uh, some point we can run across each other in person and I'll, 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 I'll buy a drink. Yeah, that'd be cool. Thank you for listening to the Echo Oscar Delta podcast, where we talk to Navy EOD techs and hear the stories that they want to share.